Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears, ladies and gentlemen. You are tuned to the MC Lars podcast. This is a long episode. I talked to Matt from Weedus. He also plays bass with Mike Doty of Soul Coughing. Front a lot. He plays bass with me a lot. Today is Monday, February 10th. This is episode 76. And Matt also plays in a band with his wife called The Ventura Project. I'm on tour right now with The Double Clicks and Schaefer the Dark Lord. We're driving to Orlando today. And uh, The Double Clicks join us for the last week of the tour. But I wanted to shout out the rest of the dates. NerdcoreTour.com for tickets. It's my only tour of the year. Uh, Orlando the 11th. Atlanta the 12th. Austin the 14th. Dallas the 15th, Oklahoma City the 16th, Kansas City the 17th, Minneapolis the 19th, Chicago the 21st, Cleveland the 22nd, Ann Arbor the 23rd, Columbus the 25th, and Rochester February 26th. So this is my interview with Matt, one of my favorite people. It actually was his birthday last Monday, and uh, we're going to end with Weedus' cover of Mbop. So because it's such a long interview, we're going to jump right into it. This week's episode is brought to you by the Patreon Larsians. Thank you all for your support. For only $4 a month, you can get two brand new MC Lars songs and have access to my entire back catalog. That's crazy. Shout out to the new supporters, Eric Marshall, Dragon Raygun, and Brad. And shout out to the old ones, Rebecca Lau, Ross Mack, and Austin Green. Thank you all for your support. This is my interview with Matt Milligan from Weedus. We just start recording and we can talk. Boomer lives, Mark Marin. <laughs> okay, Boomer classic, lives. Classic, classic. <laughs> That's good. You know, Mark, because his cat died, right? Yes, I did know that his cat died. That's what's up. Um, <laughs> Matt Milligan. Hi. Hi. Matt Milligan from Weedus, and you play with Mike Doty. Yeah. And Front A Lot. And Front A Lot. And, and you, when, uh, <laughs> when, you know, when I'm really lucky. When, um, when I get to tour with Weedus, especially. Yeah. Or um, when you have a residency at Gold Sounds. That was two years ago. Two years. Three. No, seriously? 2018. So like two and a half now. Mm. Jesus. We should do that again. Yeah, but maybe just do maybe just do one Lars Fest and have all my friends open and make it an annual. Trip. It was a really fun. Um, that was a really fun thing to do. Shout I love the Telly. fact. Yeah, shout out to Will Telly on the drums, and uh, and all of the. I mean, you had. It's a testament to how many uh, like super cool creative people you know because like every one of those shows was stacked. Yeah, with great openers. Yeah, um, it was cool. It was it was this thing about. Um, Locally, can you make people care enough to come see you five times in a row? Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the trick is you have openers who have different fans. Mm-hmm. Holler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, Matt, we were just talking about Star Wars. We were talking about Star Wars. So I was I, saying I saw The Rise of Skywalker. Well, well the start of this um, meetup here was that yeah. I caught you on Instagram talking to people trying to understand how Star Wars works. Right, trying to figure out the chronology. And Clone Wars is such a gigantic... Thing with all like three series about it, and then this upcoming Disney Plus one, yeah, plus the movie. How familiar are you with the Clone Wars? Not very at all. I'm not. You know, it's funny. I'm. I've seen all of the Star Wars movies. I have not seen the Mandalorian. Yo, um, you have. I've heard it's good. No, but I have not. I haven't done the Disney Plus thing yet. Um, but I've seen all the movies and I enjoy them. But I'm definitely not like. I wouldn't call myself a Star Wars fan, even though I'd like them, just because I feel like that's a real loaded thing to say 
Like, I really liked The Last Jedi. Yeah. I thought it was great. And then when I talked to people who are, like, Star Wars fans, they get really upset. And they try to tell me why I shouldn't like it, and I just don't... <laughs> what do they say? Uh, without that, spoiling too much. Yeah, no, without spoiling. Uh, that... Well, when Ray dies, it's sad. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, oh, whoops. Um, no, that, like, um, I, I think people get... People who grew up with these movies, which I actually kind of didn't. I did see them as a kid, but they weren't really like a part of my childhood. Like I know they are for so many people. Because you don't have that high school memory of going to see episode one with all your friends when you were like in high school. You would have been in like fourth grade when it came out. I did go see episode one in the theater when it came out. I must have been in like middle school. I'm trying to remember. We could figure it out. I guess what year did that was 98, I think 98. So I was like 12. Oh, okay. Well, that's still old So enough. I was old enough to go see it. And I actually have a memory. I was in high school when episode two came out. Uh. And I remember being very upset. You didn't <laughs> like did it? I did not like that But there's one. an epic scene where Yoda fights um, Darth Sidious? Yeah, like or- the, uh, the CGI Yoda is like doing yeah. all the backflips around and stuff. And I, I remember, I was also at that point, I think in, in that particular phase of my teenage years, I was um, going through a real smug movie snob face what you thought it was cgi yoda was i didn't like real. the cgi stuff and i just i don't know i i did not dig yeah there you go you just brought it up i just and by here. saying he fought yeah darth sidious yeah see look sidious. at i would have not even remembered that name and i almost spoiled it by saying his other name but saying this gives away the the uh last jedi wow yes it does so it didn't how yeah. about that you know, the only reason i know that is because i was watching summaries about episode two and three to figure out where the Clone Wars goes chrono- chronologically, because apparently it comes between the second one after Jango Fett is killed and <laughs> the third one. See, it's all this See, yeah, nerdy so stuff. Much. It is so much of that. Anyway, so like, I don't know a lot of the nerdy stuff, but I thought that I loved Last Jedi. I thought it was really like, I thought it was one of the more beautifully shot of those movies. I thought it looked amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I thought it was really compelling and I liked what they added. I think the things that I liked about it are the things that, Star Wars fans didn't because they thought it was like messing with characters in a way that wouldn't have happened. But I don't have, there's so many people with so many reference people who have read books about these movies, people who have seen series and again, Clone Wars, all this stuff. And I just don't. So the idea of like, I would never profess to know what someone would or wouldn't do. And then there's this (laughs) whole thing, Matt, that I'm learning about that there's, you know, there's like dozens of books, maybe like a hundred books plus and Lucas and Disney at a certain point, determine which of those books were canon and which were right. not. Yeah. And and so Clone Wars is the Christmas special is not canon apparently. <laughs> it's too bad. But um I'm going to do a song about that for this Patreon project um all the Star Wars stuff. And I wanted to say that um there's a there's a there's a kiss between two characters that we won't mention. I saw it like in a, the Christmas special. No, I'm sorry. In oh. um, Last Jedi. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. And 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 when I when they did that, I I watched it on like the first showing on Thursday and someone yells out forbidden. <laughs> and laugh. So yeah. I'm actually so nervous about like for all of the more recent star Wars movies, I've made a point to wait. I don't even go on opening weekends. Like I wait like a week or two to then see it because I feel like I'm not pre- prepared or qualified. You don't worry about with spoilers? That audience. And I don't know. I don't, I don't worry that much about spoilers, but the idea of sitting in an audience where someone would yell something like that, and I would just be there going like, "I don't, I don't, I don't get know. it." I'm not prepared to engage in this conversation mid movie. There's a guy. There's a guy <laughs> interviewed Luke Ski. He does parodies, and he he has um, 
a great a Death Star Christmas or something. He does really funny stuff and a lot of Star Wars stuff. Mm. Anyway, he texted everyone the morning of before it came out. He's saying, hey, guys, I'm trying to avoid spoilers. So if you need to get a hold of me today, text or call me because I'll be off the Internet. <laughs> and I wrote back, Luke, you take this serious. So <laughs> Can I tell a really funny uh, spoiler story that happened to a friend of mine? We got time, um, bro. Yes. Uh, this is from a different fandom. This is uh, uh, Harry Potter world. Oh. And this is just like heads up spoilers for Harry Potter, but I think we're all probably okay at this point on that. Um, my my friend Keith, um, when the last no, when the second to last book came out, um, Half Blood Prince, he got it and was so s- terrified of spoilers that he basically locked himself in his bedroom with this book and would not leave until he finished it because he was afraid someone was going to ruin something. And for had him. someone like slip food under the door. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he just sat there and read this book. While he's reading the book, his dad is watching the news <laughs> and sees a report about how people are spoiling the end of this book. People are actually going around and spoiling um, this story. And he misunderstands what the spoiler is and then goes up to the room. Keith is like three chapters from the end of this book. He's so close. And his dad just opens the door and just says, like in the most like making fun of him way, just goes like, <laughs> I know who kills Dumbledore. <laughs> and so he misunderstood the spoiler because the spoiler was saying it's about Dumbledore. He thought that the spoiler was who kills Dumbledore and not the fact that Dumbledore dies. Oh. Keith did not know that Dumbledore was about to die. He was a few pages away from that moment of the book. And this kid just like locked himself, was like, no one talked to me. And his dad just throws the door open and yells out this spoiler, like pages from the end. Well, here's the thing. If you're going to be a nerd, like nerd out on things and dedicate your life to like deep like media in a transgressive kind of way you got to move out from your parents <laughs> that's true because that's true. they have every right to like i know they can just denigrate your child like love. yeah yeah he maybe was, he was in high school he, he was a young enough person at that point that <laughs> it was <laughs> that was the sort of moment that makes you move away from your parents house as soon as you're old enough right <laughs> so you can read you can be live exactly. a childlike wonder exactly yeah, do yeah, i know yeah. this friend keith uh i don't know if you do you might have met him at one point he's uh the brother of my friend Craig, who I've, uh, Craig's the, ooh, good segue. Craig is the person who introduced me to Brendan Brown many, many years ago. So you tour with a band called Weedis, who are known for their hit Teenage Dirtbag. Yes. And you have toured the world with these homies. And you're like, you and Brendan are the, probably the two longest playing people in the band. Yeah. I mean, well, Brendan founded the band himself. Uh, he was on the podcast. Like, he was episode four. Speaking he was of, very early on. He right? gave me a new hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was a, a two-parter, right? Yeah. Which makes sense. That dude just talks and talks and talks. Well, now I do it as one. Yeah, it was like, <laughs> we did like two and a half hours. Yeah, yeah. That's what's up. <laughs> and the cool thing about Brendan is, that you probably appreciate this story, he came over and brought his mics and helped me set up, because I didn't have this fresh setup yet. Yeah, And he yeah, helped yeah. make it happen. He drove all the way from Long Island just to sit down with me. That sounds about right. Love you, Brendan. That sounds about right. He's he Brendan goes all in on everything he does. He yeah. never, never will half-ass anything. And your guys' hit album is has what the two decade anniversary this year, right? This year, twenty twenty. Yeah, the the debut album came out in two thousand. So um, this is a big year for us. So we're gonna do um, well, we're doing a reissue of the record, which Brendan is, I'm sure, right now feverishly working on um, <laughs> re-recording the songs, him, right? Yeah, re-recording the songs and doing um, ten. Um, additional songs so it's going to be like a double album now so. are you including punk ass 
blank? We are not. Because Pete wrote that? Uh, no, this guy, uh, Rich, who was actually the original bass player for the band, he wrote that song. So and every song Brandon. but that. Every uh, Yes, yes. Are you doing... Um, are you going to do Too Soon Monsoon, otherwise known as Hand Over Your Loved Ones? Nope. Suck phony. There you go. You yeah. did it. <laughs> That's album um, two, right? That's album two. You know, it's funny. It was, was it last year or two years ago? Um, I think it was two years ago, actually, because we did it at Lars Fest was the 15th anniversary of Hand Over Your Loved Ones. And we, when we just played at Lars Fest, we played Hand Over Your Loved Ones in full for the first time mm-hmm. ever. And was that the only time? We did it. Two or three times after that in the UK at like some special shows. That one's a funny one because that that record uh, like barely even came out. It is not. That was the record that got Brendan kicked off Columbia Records. I have the Australian Columbia release. Yeah, on CD. It, it came out like in a couple countries. It definitely didn't come out in America. Every once in a while, people find it in UK shops. But like it's sort of like they might have started printing them and then just been like, never mind. <laughs> because it few. didn't have a song that reacted like Teenage Dirtbag. They, the label did not like it and they wanted Brendan to uh, like to try again, basically. They were like, start over and do better. And he said no. And then he, they let him out of his contract. It seems like talking to him and um, his quest, and tell me if you agree and, and if you can comment on this, that everything happened so quickly at the beginning with like playing huge shows internationally, charting internationally, that it feels like he has this love of technical preparation and organization to make sure that everything is in his control. So when and if it happens again, he'll have control over it, as in having independently released albums, having the band he likes, having you go into, you still go into like a stereo to the house, right? You mix it on stage. We we do actually now, send the like standard um, individual instruments to the front of house, but now we have a sound guy. So for a long time, we oh, were not cool. touring with a sound guy, and that was why we had the stage mix, and then it was just, um, yeah, it took the control away from some local guy who Brendan thought would not know like what we wanted oh, just and how we wanted to sound. Stereo um, mix, right? Yeah, exactly. And the problem with that was in certain rooms uh, that worked really well. And in certain rooms, it just did not like, it was very, it could, uh, there were times where if a room was like really prone to feedback, it would be very hard. We had to play really quiet to not feedback because the guy didn't have control of microphones separate from instruments. But in like a, when y'all were opening for bowling for soup, like in a huge, like, like Academy or something with giant speakers. I bet it's in those rooms. It worked pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We actually had a harder time in smaller rooms, which is odd. That's like the opposite of what most bands would experience. (laughs) But now we just, you never do anything conventionally. We always, everything's the hard way in we for, um, and the, the weird, the weirdest, hardest way. (laughs) Yeah. But that's the thing. Like, here's the thing. When you have a song that that's that, that iconic in your catalog, mm-hmm. you could be as weird as you want. Absolutely, yeah. I think you know, <laughs> and, and pay and, everyone and to be exactly. The band. And yeah. going back to your original point, I think that um, a huge part of Brendan's approach came from a place of, you know, when you're. I've never been. I I, let, I joined the band right after Columbia happened. Like basically, just as the band was regrouping after that experience what was, was it, when, 07? 06. 06. the very beginning Dang. of 06. So wow. this is my fifteenth year. I'm starting now with the band. It's actually almost to the day. I joined in January of 2006. Happy anniversary. Thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that in that experience, um, I think the part, a huge part of it that really rattled him so much was the idea of not having control over so much of what you do. You know, like it's your, it's your band and it's your face on the product. Right. Um, 
but then there's elements of it that other people are controlling and you don't have say in where you're going to play and how you're going to play and if you're going to have to lip sync on this TV show as right. opposed to doing like that is so frightening that you know because it, it'll never fall to some random person who makes the decision it only falls to the person who's actually out there doing it right you know so like if if something was done in bad taste it would go to Brendan even if it wasn't his idea and he right. actively fought against it so I think after that experience now being on his own a huge element of you know like the, sort of the side effect of years of that is keeping control over everything as best he possibly can and, right. and having everything really really incredibly specific and incredibly like this is the way I want to do it um from truly every element of being a band is he has that level of command over you know and having a full band with what what's the setup so it's you on bass who's playing drums these days um we actually currently have two people playing drums so um it's uh, Leo Freire has been the drummer for the last few years. And then um, last year we had a tour. We were doing a tour in America with Mike Doty and Leo couldn't do it. So we brought on um, Madden class who's um, uh, now also playing drums for us. Basically the two of them are sort of switching off based on they're both really good and they're both in high demand. They're both so New York we guys. Take who we can get. Yeah. Madden is actually, um, she is a student at Berkeley. Oh wow. And, um, she took a semester off to hit the road with us. Last Sounds time. familiar. She also played with Dodie. I know it's funny. <laughs> she, uh, at the time that she joined, she was 19, which was the same age I was. Wow. There's a lot of crazy parallels, although she has not, um, she's already like in the process of going back to take more classes. <laughs> right. I never went back. I never went back. Because we just never really slowed down, did it? No, no. I thought at the time, I mean, I, we should backtrack a little bit. And yeah. Say, I, was, uh, I was going to NYU studying music, um, music, the music tech program at NYU, which is basically production and, um, and recording techniques and all that kind of stuff. And uh, while I was there, um, I met Brendan through a mutual friend, who's my friend Craig, who I mentioned earlier. And... Uh, their bass player was leaving and we hit it off and I went and I auditioned and I got offered the gig, which was like a tour was happening a couple weeks after I joined and I took a leave of absence from NYU. I really thought I was going to go back. I didn't think that um, I was able to take a two year leave. Like, yeah. No questions wow. asked. And I thought that's enough time, but it was not because again, it's like now 15 years. So you, towards the end, you had to make a decision, didn't you? At about the I guess at about a year. So it's funny, like January of 2006. And then I would say by January of 2007, I knew that I wasn't going to go back because we did two American tours in 2006. And then we, at the beginning of 2007, we were scheduled to do three UK tours. One of which was one of which was with you. I met you. We met at James Bourne's house. Yeah. In, uh, that was probably like April. Yeah. In London, April of 2007, something like that. And we were both wearing mindless self-indulgence shirts. That's right. We were. (laughs) So we knew we'd be friends. Hit it off right away. (laughs) And, um, you're the youngest or you were the youngest member of the band. I was the youngest. I'm not anymore, which is a weird thing. That's weird, right? Yeah. It's changed time. I guess 15 years will do that. I know. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, and and so that's interesting, man, because like if you had gone back to school and taken two years off, they may have replaced you. 
almost with, certainly. Yeah. So with someone who would, so you wouldn't be doing, maybe you wouldn't have been a professional musician, which is the irony of being in music school. I know, I know. It's funny. And Madden and I have talked about this a million times. She is actually, for me, it was an easier decision to make because um, I was, she's on a scholarship to Berkeley. She's wow. got a full ride scholarship to Berkeley. Woo. So that's harder to stop doing. I totally get that. I was paying to go to NYU. And for me, it was just like, well, am I going to get paid to do what I want to do? Or am I going to pay a bunch of money for these people to allegedly teach me how to do the thing I'm already being offered jobs to do? It right. just didn't make any sense. I couldn't justify it in any world. Um, so, Could you take your credits you've taken and then do like a do a, a, a bachelor's someday if you wanted? Probably. Probably. I have yeah. no idea if there's like a, a time limit on whether or not they would transfer somewhere i don't know i i've thought about it a little bit to be honest at this point if i went back to school i would probably just want to study something else right from scratch like <laughs> i love music and i love learning about it and i feel like there's always more to learn in music but the idea of doing it independently is so ingrained in me now that i would not yeah i, I would be hard for me to justify the cost of um going back to school to study music i would go back to do any if if I ever decided I wanted to do something else with my life, that would be, I'd be happy to do that. You got time, G. That's true. Yeah. Uh, and you were studying with Danielle Gaga, right? <laughs> yes, Is that I her was. real name? Um, uh, Stephanie. Why did I think Danielle? That sounds like an Italian name. I don't know. Yeah, I can't believe you remember that. You um, were Lady Gaga was your year. She, yeah, we were in the same year. Um, she, Which whatever happened to her? <laughs> yeah, she just <laughs> fell off. Nobody heard. It. No, and ironically, we actually dropped out at the same time oh wow we did yeah we left at the same time um i didn't know her that well so it's not like but you saw her around yeah you had I, classes we, with her we i did have a class with her we had um an oral comprehension did she oral a-u-r-a-l <laughs> which was like a sight singing oh that's not oh it was horrible that was like easy. one of the most was stressful she, classes was she awesome me. at it she was pretty good at it but the f- thing that we bonded over a little bit was that she was um in music like even at NYU, which was not like a traditional music school, right. most students are either jazz or classical because oh. that's the background. And she was the only other person in the class. I am only from like a rock music background and she was the same. Right. She didn't really have like, so in these classes, you're supposed to like, you know, sight sing along to, you pick your solo. So everyone's doing like John Coltrane, Miles Davis type solos. And she and I were the only ones that were doing like rock music. Like she did a Guns N' Roses guitar solo. Um, that's tight. Yeah, yeah. So that was the... Um, that was the one sort of thing we had in common. But awesome. I even remember back then she used to do like open mic type shows and she played at the bitter end. And, um, how did she dress? Did she dress conventionally? She was like a, yeah, she dressed normal. She's well, certainly nothing like now, but she definitely had the vibe of like the sort of like cool, but weird, like, you know, sort of gothy, sort of just like art school kid. So um, she was like Brendan's clone. <laughs> <laughs> you could tell that like from her high school, she was like the sort of like weirdo artsy kid. Who, right. Like had, you know, her little small circle of friends, but a, a bunch of people were just like, Oh, I don't know what to make of her. Right. Right. Yeah. That's it. That's cool. Um, did you do the sight reading acapella or was it with a tracks? I, both. I, Ooh. I had to do, you definitely had to do an acapella at one point. Um, yeah, that was, that's not my thing. That was very hard for me. Um, but you've collaborated with many different artists and work you play you play keyboards bass you play guitar i play guitar um yeah yeah i play guitar with um a couple people with um uh with gabby alter who that's what's up who uh is a frequent collaborator with mc front a lot g minor seven 
And I'm, I'm, I'm actually interviewing him next week. Are you really? For the cast. Hey, there you go. This kind of coalesced because we went to Damien's, what, 71st birthday? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> no, he's only 52. We went to his birth. No, he's <laughs> I'm so mean. To him. No, I love I love MC for a lot. He turned he turned uh, forty whatever forty five forty five. That sounds right. Whatever. Let's go with that. <laughs> we were at his birthday party and we were like, let's do this podcast. And that was a really nice hang. That was I hadn't seen you in a really long time. That was and, uh Yeah, that was a good. That's a nice group of people. It's mean to like <laughs> clown on your friends for being older because one day we'll all be that age. It's true, right? And now it's like that whole thing going back to the okay boomer. Like I feel like <laughs> this whole notion of doing music as a career is kind of in this uncertain word world, unless you have this like one in a million chance, it's a really dumb thing to do. Like professionally as your only source Agreed. of income. Absolutely. Unless you have like a hit band you're playing with or you get lucky, you know? Even then it's it's certainly ill-advised. It's dumb as heck. Yeah, yeah. It's not a good idea. I mean, it's... Uh, I was... Uh, if it wasn't for a fluke coincidence, again, that I knew, a friend of mine met Brendan, and they were talking, and Brendan randomly mentioned he needed a bass player, and my friend gave him my number. Um, Your I, friend who read Harry Potter, or his friend. His, that the guy. brother. His hey. brother. There you go. It all comes back to that. Um, if it wasn't for that... Um, I would have just stayed in NYU. I would have finished. I would have graduated with a music degree and probably six figures of debt. Oh, gosh. Um, and I would have a very different job. I'd maybe be teaching. I'd maybe be like doing coffee runs at a studio. Right, right. <laughs> Who knows? But I mean, it's, um, it, it is like, it's never lost on me how much of this world is fluke coincidence and getting, you know, I, I never want to like, take away from talent because talent is obviously really important as well. But the number of times I think about like just the, the luck of the random connection, like the idea of like, Oh, if I hadn't met that person who knew that person who knew that person, it just wouldn't have happened. And all these adventures you've had. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Places you've seen. Yeah. Um, I was gonna say, it's not ill advised to do music. I think that, um, it's this. It's got to be a journey towards feeling like you're in control of things. And I think a moment where Brennan really aided me in that, and we also clashed, was doing the Robot Kills record, which you play on. I do, yeah. And I was living with him, and it was this whole thing about, this is something we created, but meanwhile, I had a team of people who had ideas on what to do with it and everything. And it was sure. like, Brennan had been in my shoes, and he was like, you know, just, just, just forget everyone. Let's just release this thing. And it was still needed work. And it was such an interesting combustion of the, the confluence of like the old music industry, the new music industry, doing the rare thing where you sit down for a month and just write songs. And he was just donating his time and energy to work on this project. And he was so generous. And like, that was an interesting moment. But I learned from him that he said something that I'll never forget is that the industry exists around people's actual ability to write songs and play them. And and that's something like the lawyers and the managers typically can't do, or if they tried to do it, they didn't really succeed. Mm -hmm. And so that quote-unquote magic is what you have to bottle and protect and be like very careful about that. But that being said, it helps when you have like a platinum hit song. It's or, true. Or, you, or, you, or you're in a subgenre where like, the, just the subgenre kind of exists and has fans no matter what, you know, like I'm talking about nerdcore or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's an interesting lesson. And I wonder what 
like music industry lessons have you learned from Brandon that you couldn't have learned from NYU? It's so different anytime you do anything as opposed to you just hearing about how to do something. And I think that the idea of putting absolutely everything of yourself into a project and it doesn't matter really believing in what you do, you know, and it doesn't matter if people don't like it. It doesn't matter if people tell you that because people will, will tell you that you're wasting your time. Like your, um, your best days are behind you and you should move on. Ouch. I, it, yeah. which happens all the time. I yeah. mean, that's a real common, uh, thing. We, uh, has gotten that for years. Um, and, uh, And it's really, really easy to believe that. It's really easy to feed into it and and look at it sort of, you know, going back to what we were saying, I think if you think about this practically, it doesn't make sense to do music, right? Right. From a practical sense, it doesn't make sense. But the reason why you do it, the reason why I do it, the reason why everybody we know who does it does it is because you have to just be driven to do it and believe in it so completely that you don't know sort of like if this doesn't work, I don't know what else I'm going to do. Right. So I have to just give this absolutely everything I possibly can. Um, and that's the sort of thing that like to see that firsthand um, come from somebody is very powerful and has definitely been ingrained in me, um, whether I'm playing with Weedus or whoever I'm playing with in that moment. Um, it's extremely important to me to feel like, I couldn't possibly give it any more than I am while I'm there. Because if it's not the most, if it doesn't feel like it's the most important thing, um, it is like, you might as well do something else. What's this Ham, uh, Hamilton song? What, not gonna lose my shot. Not throwing away my shot. Yeah. I've never seen Hamilton. But <laughs> yeah. Not gonna throw yes. away my shot. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. the thing or, or lose yourself. Eminem, like yeah, yeah. all the iconic inspiring people that that we love musicians told you told us it's good to have a dream it's good to do something non-conventional and if you can make it work financially do it go mm-hmm. for it yeah and i think there's i wonder if like the the post millennials have a i should interview like a, a young younger artist but like if they have this idea like if it's insane and indulgent to do what we've done or if it's actually more practical because of all the tools available and the fact that you can build an audience easier and you're not so beholden to a machine. But at the same time, Facebook and all the labels and everything maintain control over like proprietary algorithms and who does get heard and what does chart. So I don't know. I wonder if it's dumber. <laughs> I'm looking at a negative light. If it's less practical to be a musician now as the world the institutions crumble and like everything's uncertain or if it makes more sense to like do that passionate risk. I feel like in the last few years, um, expectations have definitely changed. I feel like I've seen that in my time here where when I was in school and I was coming out of high school, there was still a real feeling of, um, you could be, you could get rich. Like you could be wildly, wildly successful and famous doing this. And I think that obviously that's still the case. We still Stars are still generated all the time in this MC business. Front a lot. Like MC Front a lot. Um, but uh, Brandon B. Brown. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that at this point, 
there actually does exist like a world where people can um, make really specific and weird and interesting art right. and, and make a li- make enough money that they can actually just do it and have it be self-sustaining, like more of a middle-class right. um, model, which has built up over years. And I, I would, I'm speculating a little bit here, but I think from younger generations and up and coming artists, I think that has, I feel like expectations have changed a little bit. I don't think a lot of people are as dead set on record deals as they were even 15 years ago when I was getting started. I think people right. were, that was still like the be all end all, like you got to get signed. That's the thing. And now I think people are like, I don't actually have to get signed because I can make something and I can put it up on SoundCloud or YouTube or Spotify by myself yeah. and watch it take off. And, you know, people have seen examples of, you know, guys like Chance the Rapper who have just managed to, there's proof that you can do it um, in a new way. Right. And I think that has definitely changed things a lot. And it's interesting how the weedest, recent weedest stuff is a lot weirder than the old stuff. Absolutely. And mixed differently and just, it's just very artistic. It's like seeing Warhol in one room and then seeing like, um, uh, seeing Guernica in the other room and it's the same band. <laughs> yeah. I, and which I, is great. It is. Well, I think it's, I think we're in an interesting position where, um, in a way, Brendan is incredibly lucky that he can, um, do whatever he wants creatively um, because he has um, the resources to do it from having a hugely popular song. Um, You know, that song continues to sort of fund the band in many ways. Um, We still tour and we still get to, you know, there's other ways to, to generate money, but um, over the years, the, that song has just been licensed so many times and it's been covered and mm. it just keeps popping up in places um, that sampled by Mickey Avalon. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> I can't, I would, if that ever sees the light of day, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be something? I wonder if it ever get leaked. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm you... uniquely positioned to leak it, but I don't... <laughs> we talked about it. I think on when I interviewed him, did you, why do you think that song is so timeless and like unable to, like, why do people love that song who aren't teenagers? Yeah, I. it's a great question. I honestly don't know. Um, it has sort of mystified us for years. Like, there's been a real, um, you know, there's no false modesty, but there's been a real uh, concern for so long that, like, we tour fairly regularly, especially in the UK. We go over there and we do a tremendous amount of shows every single year. And we've done it for about 10 years straight now without a break. And every time we sort of think like, this might be the last time that we can get away with this. Right. Like people are going to be like, you know what? I've heard the song. Right. I'm good. I don't need to keep going to these shows. And it, it just keeps happening. And whether it's, you know, um, it's been covered so many times by so many different people who kind of, I think that's been a part of what's kept it alive. Obviously, I'm sure you and Brendan talked about the whole One Direction thing, and that was a real, like, that was a clear marker of, like, a generation who really had no business knowing the song suddenly now have heard it, and it's been presented to them as, like, something new. Yeah, right, right. Um, And that was very cool. And then we've even had, you know, bands that we really um, dig and respect, you know, like Weezer covered the song a few years back, and um, 
Dashboard Confessional did it for a well, while. Wait, isn't it a Weezer cover? <laughs> I remember Napster tricked fools back it in the did. day. Well, that was yeah. why Weezer did it. Um, that they, uh, It's interesting. I guess Weezer in the UK are not nearly as... Maybe not quite as notable, or maybe we're just more notable there, but the balance was, was much closer. So in the UK, people yeah. really mixed us up. Right. So they started covering Teenage Dirtbag as a joke, just not even saying it was a cover. They just started <laughs> adding it to their set. Right. Um, and we and we didn't Weezer played at Reading and Leeds or they something? They did it at Reading and Leeds. That was a few years back, yeah. And then since then, when they've gone over there and just done club shows, they periodically will just throw it in. Um, aesthetically, that song is an interesting, like, for me, it's this moment between Beck and Blink-182, yeah. right? It's like, even though Blink-182, I guess, predated it, between like the the... the the aughts pop punk. But Brennan's always like, it's not a pop punk song. It's a, it's a folk rap song. But so many people like, I don't know. It, that's why it makes sense for y'all to open for Bowling for Soup or something like that. It's really interesting because it, if you, I feel like if you listen to it on its own, yeah, it, in terms of instrumentation and musically and stuff, it's really not that much of a pop punk song. I think his vocal style and a huge part of it is just where it was in time when right. it came out. You know what's interesting? And I don't think Brendan will be mad at me for saying this, but we just did a thing. Weedus has a uh, Patreon, and we do requests there. Like, um, we did a run where we let people vote on songs they wanted us to cover, mm. and we did a cover of "Mbop" by Hanson. Yeah, and that song came out in 1996. I want to say uh-huh. um, that. By the way, was the first MP3 I ever downloaded. Really? Yeah, it was one of the first CDs I I ever owned. Holler, "Middle of Nowhere" by Hanson, and uh, the production of that song is really similar to Teenage Dirtbag. And when we listen to it, we're like, this is kind of crazy because it actually does sound a lot like it. It's got the acoustic guitar thing. It's got drums that are like really kind of punchy, almost like a hip hop drum beat. You can tell someone's playing drums, the Dust but they're Brothers definitely, did the that. Dust Brothers produced yeah. that song. I didn't know it until we just did the cover. That blew my mind. Uh, they did that right after the back record, which is crazy. Um, we I should talk to Brendan about, we should end this podcast with that cover. That'd be ill. Yeah, we could definitely do that. That'd we be tight. We could definitely do that. Um, uh, it's a uh, high vo- high pitched chorus. It was a uh, yeah yeah, and and the record scratching, like the hip hop influenced record scratching that plays throughout the song. Where's the scratching and umbop on the it's chorus? Throughout the whole chorus, and you don't really notice it because it's buried in there. But and it's loads of it. Who's the DJ credit on the Teenage Dirtbags single? Pippi Long Scratchings. <laughs> Who is Pippi Long Scratchings? I don't know. I've never met him. Apparently, it's they, an actual guy. It is a real guy. Um. Brendan has lost touch with him. We don't, we don't know. It actually came up in conversation recently because we're re-recording the song and we had to make new, we had to do new record scratching and it was like, none of us, I, I <laughs> you couldn't, you I, couldn't afford Pippi Long Scratching. It's not that we couldn't afford him. We couldn't even find him. We didn't know where to look. We had no, Brendan had no idea how to contact him. He was shot guy. in a Hanson rivalry drive-by. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Pippi long shootings. Yeah. So we wound up we wound up recreating it. <laughs> That's not um, funny because gun I, control, gun gun crime in America is sad. It's true. Yes. Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. That's okay. Um, the uh, we did it ourselves. Like I actually had um, I have like a digital sort of DJ deck thing, and we wound up like doing scratching on our own to try to recreate it. So it's like for twenty years by playing it live. He's been, you guys have been perfecting this, this new version of it. How does it sound? If I were to listen to it and the original, would I be happy? I, th- I think would so. I- to be honest with you, I haven't, like, Brendan's still working on it. Like, the last version I heard, I think he's gotten really, really close. Um, it's a really, it's a bizarre process well, to and re-record existing songs. Can I ask, is it because Capital will per- for per- Perpetuity own the master? Is that why you're redoing it from scratch? 
Columbia owns the Columbia. master. Yeah, they. Um, yeah. So the idea but is, but y'all own the publishing. We own the publishing. Okay. So um, if we have a master, we're going to re- re-release it as like a celebration of the record. But in terms of this is just like business side of things, right? Um, just a little bit of backstory. If you um, have a song and somebody wants to use your song in a commercial or a movie or any sort of thing like that, they um, pay you a fee to use the song. And if you own the publishing, you get that fee. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they also have to pay something called a master sync fee. And that's to use the recording. It's the difference between the song, which is just like a piece of music, and the recording of that song. Right. So Columbia Records owns the recording of Teenage Dirtbag that was featured on the first album. They own that entire, all of the recordings from that record they own. Do they own the second record or they gave it? No, they gave it back to us. Because they, of the post-it. Exactly. They only own the first record. Um, For so, those of you who want to know that story, listen to the early episodes with Brendan B. Brown. That's a little asterisk, like Marvel Comics. Perfect. For this. Okay, back yes. to Matt. Back um, to Matt. <laughs> um, so if we have a our own version of Teenage Dirtbag that yeah. sounds pretty much the same as the original or very, very close, we could make a deal. Let's say somebody wants to use Teenage Dirtbag in their TV show. They can use our version for a, for a much lower master sync fee because Columbia's sync fee is really high because they own the you master. You know how much it is? Popular song. I don't actually. Yeah. I think it varies from case to case. Okay. Basically, a master sync fee, they can just charge whatever they think it's worth in that moment. But so when One Direction covered it in the Mor- Morgan Spurlock movie, they had to just... They didn't have to pay the master sync fee because the they publishing. covered it. Exactly. But Brendan had to approve it. Brendan had to approve it and he did. Like he and But he didn't approve the McGavillon thing. No, well, that was more complicated because that was they wanted. They wanted to own. It was they had rewritten the verses to the song, and so right. it was about sharing the writing credit. And they wanted. I don't remember the numbers, but we'll say they wanted more than what Brendan thought was fair. Right. Um. For a very slight rewrite of a couple of lyrics. In I his mean, that would have given verse. Mickey Avalon a whole second win. Maybe. Or maybe it would have <laughs> ruined our cred forever. <laughs> Who knows? Um, it's funny how. Okay, so okay, so back to re-recording the single. So yeah, the plan is you're doing the 20th anniversary album. Yeah. How do you make sure that people are listening to that on Spotify as opposed to the the Columbia one? Wait, Columbia? Columbia, yeah. Like, or that's probably not the that's not the intention, is it? It's a great question. Um, no, I think that. We've been talking about that recently, actually, and like what to do um, in addition to recreating the album, you have to recreate the artwork and all that kind of stuff. And we were just talking about doing something new with the artwork where it stands out in Spotify in the tiny little image to make it clear that it's not the mm-hmm. original album. You know, what's a weird thing that has kind of bothered us for a long time, but in this case might work in our favor huh. is the version of the first sweetest record that's on Spotify and iTunes and every is edited, service right? is censored. They have never they take posted, out gun. Yes. But the whole record is, is the edited version. They've never posted the explicit version of the record. And meanwhile, that got all the plays and that got all the plays, but we get asked truly all the time. Like, why can I not hear an unedited version of teenage dirtbag? And we don't have the answer because we don't have the rights to, we can't do anything about it. It's up to them to post that material because they own it. And you know how quickly labels like to work with, yes. with the old but catalogs. But it will be nice to say that the version that we're going to post is the only version that's actually unedited that's available online. So that's kind of fun. That is fun. That's it. I know. I remember that. And there's two versions, right? There's like the soundtrack version and then the album version. Yes. Different ISRC numbers, so they're not collated. Yeah. The uh, 
I think still to this day, which is kind of bizarre, but the, I think the version that has the most plays on Spotify is the one that is from the Dawson's Creek soundtrack. Which is edited. Which is edited. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, man. It's weird. Um, interesting. So you met Soul Coughing's Mike Doty through your time with Weedis. Yeah, we met through, um, well, we actually met through um, Handjob Academy. Handjob Academy, yes, exactly. Um, and we had invited them to, this goes back to the weird connections in this world, right? I was, I was just thinking about how I said earlier, like the, the like people knowing each other is how all of this stuff happens. It was just the most random connection we met. Because Brendan met her on the subway, right? She was talking right. about Warp Tour and he's like, I have friends who do Warp Tour. That's right. And she's like, who is this fool? <laughs> Um, we met Handjob Academy through, um, well, it was a random meeting there. And I think then actually Frontalot had some connection, like knew of them at least. And there was, uh, anyway, we, we, we met them and we did a week of shows in the UK with Handjob Academy. Um, that would have been 2014, 14 sounds about right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it must have been 2014. And then in 2015, we loved having them out. We wanted to have them out for an entire tour. Um, but when we reached out, they couldn't do it. Um, Scheduling-wise, it just was too long. And um, at the time, Claire was dating Mike. And um, I hadn't met him yet, but Brendan was on the phone with Claire. And she was saying, like, I'm sorry, we can't do the tour. And the way I've heard this story is literally in the background on the phone, Brendan heard Dodie just go, I'll do it. Huh. <laughs> and um, we couldn't imagine. I mean, Brendan and I, and most of the band, honestly, were like huge old fans of, of his and of Soul Coughing. Mm. Eloso, what a record. Yeah. And the idea of him opening for us just didn't even register. It was like, how, what? No, that's not how this would ever happen. But in England, they weren't as big, right? They were not. He had not yeah. been to the UK in a long, long time. So, um, he was into it and we were like, yeah, if you want to, that'd be mm. amazing. So he came out and we wound up backing him up on that tour, which we have made a habit of doing. We did it with you on the first tour that we did with you over yeah. there. Um, and, uh, and it was great. And he and I especially like really hit it off. And now I've done, uh, five tours with Mike. Um, which has been fantastic. I mean, earlier this year we did five tours. Wow. Yeah. I did two runs with him in 2019 doing, um, it was the 25th anniversary of Ruby Vroom, Soul Coughing's first record, mm. which was the record that got me into them. And, um, with the we, guy with his face, with the goggles on the cover. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 And we did that record in full every night. And I played, uh, like keyboards, samplers and stuff. Um, for that, which was really, really wild. That was one of the, that was definitely a career highlight for me. I, I would have never thought that I would be able to to do something like that. I'm proud of you, man. Great. What's the difference? So how would you typify the difference in the States between Weedis fans and Soul Coughing fans? Or is it hard to because they're all just at the show? Soul Coughing fans, I imagine, are older. They are definitely older. You know, so this was the interesting thing about going out. We did a run in the States with Weedis opening for Mike. So right. I was doing both sets with Weedis. Uh, when we invited Mike to the UK, he opened for us. And then in America, Weedis does not have as much draw. So Mike headlined and we opened for him. And I played in both sets. And um, his crowd is definitely a little bit older, but 
They know Teenage Dirtbag, I guess. Some of them did and some of them didn't. Right. And it was a really... So you were talking about like the newer material is like so different. Right. And it was really like interesting to get to play for an audience where basically they didn't already have an idea of who we were. Mm. You know, there was not a loaded concept uh, idea that like Weedis is an early 2000s pop punk band, which is what how we're known in Europe right. pretty much exclusively. Right. Um, and Australia. And Australia. Yeah, most of the world. And in America, like a few people knew Teenage Dirtbag, but we didn't close with it. Um, we did it in the middle of the set and we were able to lean on some of Brendan's more sort of like singer songwritery music. Did you do the context. Green Day cover? No, we did not do the Green Day cover. Um, we didn't do, oh, we did, um, uh, we did a Tragically Hip cover on that tour and we did a Rush cover. That's um, what's up. Yeah, yeah. And um, y'all played a Rush cover at the wedding. Closer to the heart, right? No, no. T- uh, time stands still. Time stands still. When we went during the walkout, yeah, I'm crying. Yeah, me and Brendan and uh, Joey. That was a beautiful gift. It was. That was. Uh, Thank you. You're you're welcome. That was. Uh, talk about something to add to a a, a fun <laughs> list of things I've done is doing a rush cover in a church at a wedding was uh, well was wonderful. And I met Ash. I mean, we'll go back to. I want to talk about Dodie in a second, but I met Ash because they played South by Southwest. Because they had done the tour with Front a lot and Miss Eves and y'all, yeah. And um, Ash knew about me. She was she's a little younger, so Claire knew about me through college radio. But Ash hadn't heard my music really. But Brenda would always wear my shirt. So yeah. She's like, Who is this MC Lars? So I kind of had cred with her because of Brendan's wardrobe. <laughs> and we both like obviously as a mentor to both of us, like we both had that in common. We started dating like, and the fact that she toured the UK and I'd see there. Stickers backstage. Yeah, it's yeah, kind yeah. of a rock, rock and roll romance. It was a really funny. Um, it was a funny thing when I when we heard. I remember. I think I was with Brendan when we heard that you two had started dating. Yeah, and it was this really funny sense of like. I just remember us both being like, "Of course, <laughs> of course they did. Of course they hit it off." Like, yeah, I wouldn't have thought of it on its own, but then when I heard, I was like, "Yeah, that's like that is a." That is a perfect pairing. Like, yeah. It's great. Music brass together. And plus, Ash is so banging, you know. She's so hot. So. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I had to holler. No, I'm kidding. I'm not trying to objectify my wife. No. But I think it's funny to, like, have a romantic relationship with someone and then, like, be able to... <laughs> this is going to get me in trouble. If you can, like, keep remi- like keep being sassy with your partner and remind them that they're sexy and, like... I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking that your wife is very hot. Okay, that's what's I up. I think that is more than appropriate. <laughs> so back so back to Dodie. Um speaking of hot wives. Yeah. Dodie. No. Mm. So um so Dodie, so I feel like Dodie is the younger Gen X fans and yeah. Weedus is the older millennial fans. That's probably true. And so there's this generational divide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was it was really interesting to get to, you know, we had more um we kind of didn't know what was going to happen from Weedis's perspective, opening for Mike in the States. And it was met more positively than we thought. Yeah. I, I would say, and I'm speaking for the whole band here, but I think that that was probably the general consensus, um, which was really interesting. And now we want to do more. I think we're going to do an American tour. Um, with Dodie? No, 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 not, not with him again. I think we're going to do something else in 2000, uh, in this year, 2020 is the year now. Um, and, either do it as a headline or a co-headline with somebody else. And we want to just try and test that again. Prior to that tour with Mike, we had not toured America in like a decade, at least not coast to coast proper American tour. Um, It was a really, really long time. Were you, you were in a bus? Yeah. 
Okay. Because I know y'all have the van with the beds. We've done, I have done, uh, I've toured America in that van with beds with Brendan a few times, mm. but we stopped. I mean, we just, it shows were so hit and miss for us in America over the right. years. And by comparison, when we went to Europe or Australia or any of those places, they were so solid. And it was just, you know, both, um, I would say creatively and financially, it was just such a great vibe going to these other places. It was really hard to justify. It's like, well, why would we get in a van and do a show to fit, you know, 10 people in Durham, North Carolina, when we can go to London and and fill a room. Um, Right. So we let, we kind of let that fade for a really, really long time. And right before we did the room with Mike, we did a headline show in Philly um, just kind of a random one. We got asked to play it. Have you ever done Milk Boy? Yeah, great room, right? Yeah, I'm playing um, there. I think I'm playing there next next month with Schaefer. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad I set you up for that plug. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, uh, we got invited to do that show, and it was the first time in my experience with the band that we had a, a show in America that actually felt like a UK one, where oh. people were really into it. We filled the room. Right. Um, they feed you there. Yeah, exactly. Shout out to Milk the, Boy. The, uh, shout out to Milk Boy. Great venue. Love it. I can't wait to go back. Um, but uh, it really felt like a solid crowd. Like, And this, I'm going to sort of transition into another point here, but it was interesting talking about like in the past, you know, saying how like people will tell you like your your best days are behind you and you right, faded and right, stuff. Right. I've also, Brendan and I have talked a lot about some of my favorite acts are people who have been bands who are weird and who have existed sort of on the fringe for a long time. The Eels. Long enough. The Eels, Ween, They Might Be Giants. Um, bands that have been around for so long. At a certain point, I feel like if you are an artist and you've been performing for 20 years, right. 15 years, 30 years, whatever it is, at a certain point, it's almost like the world looks at you and they're like, all right. Well, they can't be terrible. Right, 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 like, right, right. You, And it's true. Like, you and I both know. You and I both know. It's like, at a certain right. point, you, you actually can't fake it for that long. You have to have some merit. You have to have some fans. You have to have some ability to sustain yourself if right. you're going to do it for 20, 20 years. years. But And if you're a quote-unquote one-hit wonder... You can't last if you don't have the chops exactly. and the passion. Exactly. And I would say that, I mean, people would might want to use that paint weedus with those brushes. But, sure. But that's not the whole thing. You guys have had a few hits, and you've gone so far. Yeah. Um. Speaking of that, it's funny. I, last last holiday season, I saw Weird Al, and we were talking about like just the fact that sticking around, and he said how that was like um like a special thing when you can just keep going where he's a total example of that. But we were laughing about how people come to, now I get this too. I wonder if you get it too. Kids will come to my show and they'll look like they're 40 and they'll have big beards and be drinking a beer and they'll be like, man, I first saw you when I was five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. It's that's crazy. Longevity. That's like, you see it and sometimes it doesn't feel like 15 years. No, but these doesn't. kids are growing up. Yeah. It's weird. Weird Al is another perfect example. Yeah. Like I remember when I first got into Weird Al, he was like, he was a joke, like in in the most genuine sense. Like nobody took him seriously. He was. Mm. What era are we talking? Uh, well, well, I first got into Weird Al at Bad Hair Day. That's what's up. Yeah, um, that was. I got that CD as a gift when I finished the fourth grade. 
Good job, man. And that was a that was a real life changer for me. But um, God, that record's great. Oh my God, it's it's perfect. <laughs> it's just perfect. But um, but yeah, and now like I, you've seen it too. Like he has become a treasure as he should be. He's probably the most lauded American entertainer in music. I, it's, you'd be hard to think of someone who's more like universally beloved, who still tours, who still tours, who still does it and does it successfully. Um, like seemingly like on a, a pretty large scale, like, you know, he's manages to put on these really like outrageous yeah. shows. The, the tour that he did that was two years ago or a year ago, the, uh, ill-advised vanity. Tour, oh yeah. You went a few times, right? I went twice. Um, that was one of the most like heartwarming and, and, uh, Oh, what's the word? Like it was one of the most satisfying things to see someone like him doing a tour like that successfully where he just like, I don't know. It felt like, even though it's not the ending, it felt like the most perfect, like happy right. ending to a music story I have ever seen in my life. It, I was yeah. moved genuinely emotionally moved by that show. And, and, and it's funny how, yeah, those songs hold up the originals. Yeah. And it, so that's, so going back to the idea of being like a weird fringe act that lasts forever. Yeah. Um, what do you think you guys got 20 more years? 20? <laughs> Man, I don't know. You know, Brendan is I'm How old's Brendan now? 40? 40? No, Brendan's 46. So he's frontalized age. Yeah. So yeah, he, he and he and Damien are about the same age. That's why they get lot. they get along so well. I can say Damien, right? That's all right. <laughs> Damien Hess. Um uh yes, they are about the same age. Um yeah, I don't Brendan's 11 years older than me, so he uh I've always sort of felt like it's on him. I don't know how long Brendan. So he was younger than you when you started the I band. Know, I know. I realized that somewhat recently. Like when I met Brendan, he was younger than me when I started the band. But now when I first started with the band, Brendan was younger than I am right now, which is, yeah, a weird. That's crazy. Weird thing to think about. Um, there's nothing. And, and there's nothing wrong with being like a middle class nostalgia act who does his or her their music for their living. I Absolutely, mean, that's actually yeah. like, that's like the perfect end game. What more do you want? Like, there's a funny supposed lyric. They go, how does it feel to be a one hit wonder? And he goes, I don't know. How does it feel to have no hits? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It's really, really true. Yeah. I mean, I've, I agree. I think it's great. And I think he's in a kind of perfect position at the same time, you know, at least for the last few years. And this is not like, not trying to air Brendan's business too much, but, um, you know, that song generates enough, for him that if he wanted to, he could stop and he could He'd probably have more money. <laughs> he could, he would definitely have more money. He could live off royalties and probably would do okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe he could do some other small, but he could retire the brand Wheatus and he could do something else. And most of the, the money that he or like he could probably sustain. You never know what that sort of thing. Like maybe it will eventually fade off and he won't get that kind of those checks as consistently, but he could, Hmm. But he chooses not to. He would rather be broke investing every penny back into the band so that he can play and he can continue to make weird new records. Right. Which I respect the hell out of that. I think that's yeah. like a really, you know, that says a lot. But at the same time, if at some point in the future he was like, you know what? <laughs> I kind of need some time to just be chill and not be so like nonstop work all the time. I would be like, yeah, I, I totally get it. Um, the, You meet a lot of musicians in this industry and you meet a lot of performers, yeah. but you don't meet a lot of artists. Brendan is an artist. Brendan is an artist. <laughs> Brendan is an artist. It's very, very true. And, that, um, and because artists, 
are uncompromising and like the, the quote unquote smart thing, an industry person would be like, Brendan, do an album with major chords, poppy lyrics, normal time signatures, do it in a week and do recreate what was your formula. Mm-hmm. And he's like, nah, if anyone tells him that, nah, I'm going to produce it myself. Yeah, he doesn't want to do that. I'm going to record it through a through a phone or something like completely unconventional. Yeah. I'm going to have the, and then there's a thing where like he has you all used to do, you'd have to play the whole song start to finish and then he'd do like a thousand takes. We did two records. Um, well, it's now like as a pair, Lightning and Jupiter, um, the two EPs. And those were recorded live in the studio. So we did. Start to finish. Uh, yep. No overdubs, nothing like Not that. Not the whole album per track. Per track, yeah. That's yeah. still impressive. We, yeah, no, and that was like we did each song like at least a hundred times. Um, because we were also yeah. figuring out the arrangements as we went. Like we were kind of coming up with different parts. And there is something to be said for like when you play a song that many times. Um, it's like when you do something live. You know, when you when you go on tour and you do a song over and over and over again, you discover new creative ground that you had never thought of before. Right. And that to make that happen in the studio is super cool. It's expensive. And it takes a long time. Were you recording out in Northport? Yeah. And so he had all y'all on salary or whatever. Oh, yeah. Ooh, that yeah. man. He's yeah. generous. Yeah, no, he he is. Uh, I, again, it goes back to the, the money thing. Like, if he wanted to, he could live a much more comfortable life. But he would much rather pay every cent to pay for his musicians and his gear. And his tour bus. And his tour buses. Yeah, exactly. And all the expenses that go with it. In and order his, to do oh, and like MC Lars opening <laughs> and MC Lars's opening slot and uh, uh, yeah. uh, all of that and flying his gear. He won't use rented gear, so he flies his own equipment to the UK for an astronomical price because he doesn't want to have to plug into like a Marshall stack. He wants to have his own special guitar setup and all that stuff. So when y'all open for the busted reunion at Wembley. We did the Busted uh, Reunion Tour. Uh, we did 18 arena shows. One of them was at Wembley, yeah. And that we must did two have, nights at the O2 in London. That must have been like such a great redemption for y'all, but especially Brendan, like having fought tooth and nail and then now being remembered and lauded by this this legendary band. And he's kind of been a mentor to James Bourne in a yeah, way. Yeah, for sure, right? for sure. Um, it was. It was a, a really incredible... Um, opportunity and a genuine you know because weedus has fallen off the radar in a way like i we've actually managed to battle against this for years but um for a long time the biggest problem we had over there is like it seemed like every single time we toured after every show at least one person would come up to us and be like i didn't know you guys were still a band and like and we have never not been a band but when you don't have radio singles and you don't have that kind of play as much and you're independent Right. You don't have a PR campaign right, right, reminding right. people. Right. People just don't notice and they think you're gone. Um, I, I, I get that comment too. Oh, MC Large is still going. Still going, I hate, yeah. I hate, I hate when people say that, but also I'm like, well, at least you're to me. Exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> it's not a nice thing to say to someone <laughs> who hasn't had a hit recently. I think, it's, I think it feels more loaded to us than it actually probably is to them. Um, well, you guys still exist? Yeah. yeah what yeah. did we think we went on hiatus? <laughs> um, but for that, for us to do a tour of that level with that, amount of attention was huge because it did remind people and we were able to get up there and you know we did a short set we did six songs but we were able to do um a handful of new ones that went over really well um and then i bet that helped your guys's numbers on return it did it did i mean it, it was up. fascinating to see like to play those huge arena shows you know we were playing like you know twenty thousand people uh a night and then actually 
when you do that level of show, you can look at Spotify and you can actually see the numbers of like, uh, we did one track from the most recent like LP we did. Uh-huh. And that song instantly became the most played. What was the record, song? 14. Uh. Um, and it, it was crazy. Yeah. It's just a bizarre thing to, you do realize that like that is, it's so obvious, but it's true. Like if, if the song is good and you play it for enough people, they will actually, it will catch a little bit. I mean, imagine that it's just magic getting, yeah, it's cool. Using that to leverage your new stuff. Yeah. But this is like an unparalleled feeling. And I've never had this feeling at this level, playing a song for 20,000 people that everyone knows everyone adores and they have an emotional connection to it and, re- and are reminded of a certain moment of their life. Like that song for me, my first girlfriend and I in high school, it was like one of our songs because when our first times we hung out, we went to a concert and like, it was like this whole thing. Anyway, that song is like a moment yeah. in everyone's life and to have 20 of those people singing along. I mean, it must feel like it must be one that as a musician, even though you didn't write it, it must be like, one of the most amazing feelings. It's very surreal. You know, it's funny. I've had this experience with like, um, it's, it's such a great, um, reminder as a musician, primarily, you know, like I've, I've done a little bit of like my own, you know, writing and recording over the years with a few people, but generally speaking, I, I, you know, I'm a player, um, and true player, a, a true player. <laughs> I really walked into that. Wait, one. The Ventura project. Yeah, yeah. I have a band with you my wife, wife, Joey, who's also in Weedus. And, um, but, uh, beyond that, like the power of playing a song that people love is wild. It's really incredible. And I've had that, you know, like, it's like um, probably better than any drugs. It, it better I, in than my heroin. experience, like I, I, for me, you know, again, I'm, as a musician, like, I don't know if you've ever done any drugs, but I, I anyway, I've, I've done, <laughs> <laughs> uh, not never heroin. So I can't compare it to heroin, but um, for me, like being on stage in those moments is like the greatest, you know, it's, it's the best feelings of my life are in those moments being on stage and having those experiences. What I was going to say is yeah. playing teenage dirtbag in front of 20,000 people is amazing. It's also amazing to me. I got asked to fill in, um, it's the last show I did last year where I sat in and played bass for a tribute to Dolly Parton that, um, I did not know you did this. Yeah, yeah, I was. It was at the Bell House um, at, in the end of December, and um, and it was great. Super good bands, like, and they have they have built up quite a nice following for themselves. It was packed out at the Bell House, a few hundred people, and uh, and we did "I Will Always Love You" by Dolly, and to play that song on a stage for an audience like that, you you don't. Sometimes you don't realize, I mean, this is why people go to concerts as well. Right. The power of a song, of that level of a song, is completely overwhelming. To perform it and to feel like you have that kind of a response from a crowd back to you. Yeah. Whether it's Teenage Urbeg, which, again, I didn't write, but I feel very connected to. um, Or I Will Always Love You, which I don't have any connection to other than the fact that I think it's a great song. The power of that moment is so incredibly intoxicating and truly is why I do what I do, you know? Yeah, I mean, that Cobain talks about in his journals how playing music live, and this is even when Nirvana was getting started, it's the most addictive thing. And here's a guy who had uh, his knowing about drugs, right? Yeah. Most addictive thing, and as much of a power change of energy as sex, right? Mm-hmm. Like that on a it new, is for new sure. level because it's it's spiritual and... It's this interesting dichotomy because most people don't care about music. Like people care. I'm sorry. Most songs that get written 
no one ever hears. Yes. If you were to look at every song. But there are these magic transcendent songs which define eras and, and pop up. And I think as musicians, we chase that. And kind of like actors chase the moment where they can do the perfect Hamlet or whatever. There's like talking about, I don't know. We're, we're part of this tradition that's much older than us mm-hmm. and will be here long after us. And the fact that we've all met in this scene and gotten to travel the world and stuff, it's such a blessing, man. It really is, yeah. And our friendship's a blessing. It is. It is. We've had so much fun. You know, I actually have to say, because um, I thought of this the other day when I was thinking about seeing you for this. Yeah. When I was, I joined Weedus when I was young. I was 19 years old mm-hmm. when I left college to do it. And in those times, I had a real, um, which I think a lot of people deal with, and I still do sometimes, but a real like feeling of like imposter syndrome where I was so concerned. I was like, oh my God, at a certain point, someone's going to realize that I don't belong here, right. you know, and that this is not where I should be. I'm not, I'm not a professional. I'm not qualified. All these people are professionals and I'm not. <laughs> and they're going to find out and I'm going to be out of here. I feel every day, Matt. I, I, worry I, about I that. still do. I've gotten, right. I've gotten at more peace with it over the last few years, but um, it, it was really, really rough back then. And you were the first person to hire me to play after Wheatus. Huh. Like we did that tour together. Right. Where I played I played bass for you, but as a part of Wheatus, you know, when right. we backed you up. But then after that, we still continued to play together. And you called me in and I played with you and uh Was it John? And John Longley and Mike Russo. And yeah. we did a handful of shows. Um We opened for T Pain, right? We opened for T Pain. <laughs> um and we did yeah, like a, a handful. And uh and that was you were the first person to call me and ask me to play. Um Really? Just outside, Aww. completely outside of Wheatus. And that was, at the time, like, one of the most validating and, like, important things for me, like, growing as a musician. Um, That's dope. So thank you. Hey, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, here's the thing that I love about playing shows with you, um, that you're different than other artists. You are ready. When, whenever you come to a practice, you know the songs, and it's never you that we have to redo parts for because you put your time into it and you have like i think like i was gonna say like a savant kind of memory but savant maybe has some pejorative implications but you have this memory for scales and notes that i don't have like i have to if i'm gonna play robot kills on guitar yeah i have to practice that all day even though i played that song forever yeah you just get you just have this ability to learn songs and maybe that's sight reading with gaga that taught you that or something but <laughs> how do you, you would you agree that your memory skills are better than most people i think it's actually one of my the luckier qualities that i have i because i and i say lucky only because it's not something i really ever worked on i just have had that ability where right i'm very good at um like i can learn something and remember it um pretty pretty quickly and pretty immediately and, and it does lock in like right now i mean i would need like a moment but i could probably remember most of your set <laughs> right fairly quick. and we haven't played together in what maybe two years now oh my gosh um but yeah no i have a pretty pretty solid memory for for music like if i listen to a song and i have it like under my fingers it kind of just stays there that and that and that matt is why you get to tour Dodie and damien and everyone else you know i mean it's like you what is that what is the peter principle you rise to your highest level of incompetence have you heard that phrase no i haven't so it's like, i really like that though. you won't get you won't 
be promoted more than you're capable for. Yeah. yeah so yeah. so this imposter thing that's interesting because you're able to prove just yeah that you could keep going and um also you're easy to get along with on tour. I think people who are I don't know I found that people who are difficult or demanding or diva esque you don't hire again. No. You know I've had people who are difficult on the road and I don't <laughs> tour with them anymore. Yeah. No. It's very true. It's very true. I try to be. I mean I've gotten very lucky. Um. I've toured with a lot of people over the years and with very, very few exceptions, I have gotten along really well with, with everybody. Like, I feel like it's been, I've gotten very lucky that I've worked with really great groups of people. Um, and nobody, um, who I really, who really was like a problem or too much of a, of a diva or like a party or, or anything like that, you know? That's great, Matt. So Matt, (laughs) you know a lot about, music subgenres you are like encyclopedic and you have one of the biggest vinyl collections of all time do you still have all that vinyl i have a lot of vinyl i did downsize a tiny bit um i moved to uh joey and i moved to astoria like two years ago from greenpoint yeah and i had to downsize a little bit just to fit everything into the spot but i have i don't know how many but definitely in the thousands of records in the thousands is it insured uh yeah your renter's insurance yeah yeah, i have insurance on the house that i've definitely factored that in (laughs) um i remember when i sublet your room for you when you were on the road yeah i was like so much vinyl i was like afraid i didn't touch it because i knew it was like you could have touched precious things but you (laughs) know a lot about subgenres and musical history let's talk a little bit about black metal okay so what do you know about black metal i know a bit well we're talking about like the original like norwegian black metal like the like the true, um, true Norwegian, like black Burzum metal. and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Mayhem. Um, and mayhem. Yeah, sure. Lords of chaos. Yeah. So yeah. I've been thinking a lot about Lords of chaos and the, I bring it up because that's how bands are not supposed to treat each other. Yeah. That's a great example. <laughs> I mean, it's an amazing, I think it's, it's such a crazy story of all those bands and I, we can't even tell the whole story here, but real brief, let's do it. The story of, of Lords of chaos with, with mayhem. Yeah. Um, so, uh, basically the original like black metal scene out of Norway was, these uh, bunch of bands who were all sort of competing for being the most legit and satanic and horrible black metal. And they felt like the bands like Sepultura wore cargo shorts and therefore were not real metal. Exactly. Yeah. These guys were real metal. And to prove that they were real metal, they would actually go out and, and burn churches and attack people. And it was like a real incredibly kill people in parks. Yes, exactly. It was, it was no joke. Like the, it, it was crime. <laughs> Stuff that you probably shouldn't do. Yes. And uh, in a... uh, And also, I want to say, in Scandinavia, the churches are stave churches, meaning they're like these ancient wooden churches as opposed to like like the Catholic churches. And so it was this idea of we're reclaiming our pagan roots by by destroying the hegemonic, like, power of the christianity in scandinavia yes. so we're gonna burn down these wooden churches exactly yeah um and it came to a head where when two members of the uh community um one was varg virknes um uh murdered it was euronymous right yeah he murdered euronymous in a, a, a fight that they were having over i don't even remember what the argument was about it was again just like all rooted in kind of cred right? euronymous like, had released burzum solar records and he right. felt like he owed him more money that's right and so there was this this um, kind of schism where they Hieronymus was saying, well, I'm going to kill Burzum. I have all these plans, blah, 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 or Varg. But, but originally the original singer of mayhem had shot himself in the face 
And they used that picture for their live record. Yeah, for their live bootleg. And yeah. Aronis walked in and then rearranged the pieces and took the pictures before calling the police. He also didn't he take a piece of his skull and like yeah. made a necklace out of it? Yeah, so that's what's up. It, it's it's such a crazy story, and it's when you hear it, it just seems really like kind of cool and unbelievable, but also it is horrifying. It is absolutely <laughs> horrifying. Um uh Yeah. And Varg is out of prison now, right? Isn't he? Yeah, and he had he just got shut down on YouTube for having these kind of a racist YouTube channel. Yeah. So he's not necessarily a person that, you know, you'd want to be friends with. No, probably not. Because he killed his bandmate. He stabbed him to death. He did racist YouTube videos. But, you know, one of the first album is, is Tolkien themed. Yeah. That doesn't make the forgive him. <laughs> no, it doesn't. The song about this, this, the song Dunkle Height or whatever is about the Eye of Sauron from um, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. That's what's up. Those records are, are like, again, I, I hesitate to praise it too heavily based on all of the things we were saying. But they, I mean, if you want to talk about iconic music from an era and genre defying music, right. Those Burzum records, um, uh, mayhem, like that scene, it is so incredibly specific and, and unique to them, like really kind of lo-fi. Like they obviously didn't have a whole lot of money for their recording. So yeah. they kind of sound terrible, but yeah, very unique. Like this, like incredibly loud, nasty metal music recorded very lo-fi and very DIY. Um, That's kind of what's cool about it. Oh, it's so cool. I would say Burzum has better melodies than Mayhem. Yeah, I said it. I think that's fair. But I only, you know, I'm not trying to say that this stuff is super melodic. I mean, they're not going to be doing Hanson covers for their Patreon. Ooh. Uh, that That's a Patreon I would sign up for. <laughs> Burzum. Burzum. Yeah, here's the thing. When I play, I, I feel weird about listening to Burzum on Spotify because he gets a fraction of a penny, but... He lives in this farm in France with his kids and he doesn't vaccinate them and they're very he and his wife are a little bit gosh, I wonder if any Burzum fans are listening. But they're a little Probably they're, some. They're a little they're they're when that guy who, who massacred all those people in, in um Finland or whatever, um on at the summer camp, yeah. He sent all these manifestos and one he sent to Varg. Right. He's like part of the you know, the clique of people who aren't necessarily like um SJWs. Yeah. It's a, it, I mean, you know, this is a whole like incredibly long conversation I've had with people over the last like, can you bump R. Years. Kelly? Can you bump Michael exactly, Jackson? Exactly, which is the like, the this is really simplifying it and doing it very quickly. I sort of believe that it's up to the listener to make that call. Like, right. I don't think there's a, a sweeping judgment you can make in that regard. I think if you go back through history, it's very hard now. So, like, right now, um, I think for most people, the idea of like, really like getting into an R Kelly track is problematic and difficult um, as it should be. There's a lot there. It's really hard to think about. Um, at the same time, you go back through history and right. you find there are so many people, so many artists who we revere Poe who had tremendous problematic history. You can go back. Jerry Lewis. Find. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is Woody the, Allen. Oh my God. Well, yeah, Woody Allen is still sort of being debated, but yeah, absolutely. OJ. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I think the the lesson you're supposed to the lesson I take from it and this is like the as positive a spin as you can possibly put on all of this behavior right. is that the art is ultimately bigger than the person. Mm. You know, like when someone makes something truly iconic, is someone is able to create timeless art that will actually live on beyond their failings and their transgressions as a human being. Right. Right. And it, but it takes 
a long time. You go back and look at the the history of like Miles Davis. He did he a lot of heroin. Not a nice. Was guy. he not nice to women? No, he was not nice to women. Um, or even you know like John Lennon, another great example. John Lennon had so many. You could go back and Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Oh my God. And because and, back then <laughs> you couldn't. It was harder to. You couldn't go to Twitter and be like, John Bonham did this to me. It was harder, but at the same time, like people did know. Um, it's not like it was a total secret that these things were going on. Right. I think that, I think people are definitely more, um, let's not use the word woke, but people are more aware of, of these things now. And that's good. We should be. We should absolutely be aware and we should hold people to a higher standard. I, I'm 100% in favor of that. But I do think it's interesting just to see how um, people get torn down, but then the art somehow, like just after enough time, suddenly it's just only about what they created, right? And you don't really talk about the person so much anymore. It's just about what they what they made while they were alive. You know, think about Matt is like the we're in a, in a new world where, like we said earlier, like institutions are crumbling and di- different archetypes are being reinvented. And I think this whole like patriarchal you know you collect like those rock star thing is oh you're supposed to be really promiscuous and objectify women and stuff that is like a what a hangover from like the guns and roses yeah old world and i feel like musicians are more aware that that's not how you're supposed to act and that doesn't define your success or mean that you're successful absolutely that's that's absolutely true it's a good that's a good lesson i think people have gotten like woken up to so to speak i think that that's Men Another, and women. Yeah, absolutely. Men and women. Again, I think that, you know, holding holding ourselves to a higher standard is extremely important and we absolutely should. But I agree. I think the expectation of like what's going to happen in the music world, the idea that it's just going to be like, you know, drug fueled parties and, and, you know, drunken blackouts and groupies and all that kind of stuff. That is not it could I could just be talking now and reflecting the circles that I am in. That's entirely possible, but I do think expectations have shifted, and um, that's a good thing. And if you act like that, it's like an okay boomer kind of thing. Like you feel if someone's tr- talking about women that way or acting that way or whatever, then you're like it, it becomes this thing of like, oh, you 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 haven't gotten the memo that it's yeah, not exactly. 1998. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It it sort of just makes it comes across. I've met one or two people in the in the music world who have acted that way and who have said things where I've just been like, oh, I almost just feel bad for them. I'm like, oh man, this is not, it's y- not you think this is what you're supposed to do and you're just wrong. Like you've, you have not gotten the memo that this is not how it works anymore. And uh, yeah. you're going to find out very quickly. Um, yeah. And that's good. I think that's what Absolutely. being in the industry for all these decades, you start to see trends and shifts. And um, I always love to hear like, young musicians takes on things and i always liked how even though like what how how old are you 30 i'm 33 i'm uh, almost 34 so i always felt like i always love and i still do your perspective because i'm a few years older than you and like being around young musicians and people with fresh perspective is really good and i think that's something that jobs like teaching being a mentor to people doing music like Mm -hmm. all these things provide the opportunity yeah and i feel like you probably with brendan gave weed us all this life because you you help with their social media and the crowdfunding stuff and mm-hmm. like you maintain a lot of the quote-unquote millennial things that brendan maybe is a little slower to get sure. on top of yeah yeah i think i think it definitely does help i think just by default 
you have a different perspective when you come from a different generation, which I do. It's been wild lately, like the, few, the times that we've been working with Madden on the drums, she is 20. And so that's like a whole other perspective. It's been She's fascinating. She's younger than the hit song. She's younger than the song. <laughs> she was, we noted that um, what? when we did, uh, she also played drums for Dodie. Um, the t- uh, two of us did those tours together. And uh, she is, was it six years younger or like between five and six years younger than the record we were playing the anniversary for. Wow. Which was That's kind of t- the songs live on. Who would have thought? Absolutely crazy. Yeah, no, exactly. And, uh, but yeah, having that perspective is really fascinating and hearing the things that she was identifying with and going back and like rediscovering music, like what resonated with her as opposed to what resonated with me was, is really fascinating. Like she was really into, um, uh, loves a lot of like nineties sort of like grunge and sort of like angular rock stuff, which honestly was actually never really my thing. Like I've always felt like I missed that world. Mm, like what? Like, like the Pearl jam stuff or like, even more like Pearl jam, Soundgarden, stone temple pilots, yeah. uh, Allison chains, uh, stuff like that. I always felt like it just, I appreciated it, but it never really like resonated with me. You know, I never like just yeah. loved it. Interesting. Um, and you're I, always like, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> no no um and i always just thought like oh that's just like i'm not the right time like i'm not the right age like the the age when i was getting into music that just was not that was passe it was passe at the time like when i was getting into music was kind of like i guess what's now considered one of the golden ages of pop punk where it was like blink and green day and newfound glory and all of those bands were, and we just yeah it's true um and all of those bands were like having their moments and that was what got me into playing um, and at the time, listening to that sort of thing, then you go back and you listen to Soundgarden. It just felt so like, um, like drab and just like yeah, it was dark and like downer and just not fun. But it's funny, man. So so I want to say two things that's about that. It's interesting. Like her Nirvana chronologically would be like our Zeppelin. It's a classic, yeah. the last classic rock, exactly mu- classic music. And the other thing that's interesting about Nirvana is that if you look at Kurt's influence. They really came from a punk hardcore background, but loved stuff like the Beatles. So in a way, Nirvana was the first pop punk band. You could put that, paint that with it's a very brush. true. It's That's very what made true. them different than those other bands, I guess. It is, yeah. Well, it's what it's. I think it's what made them uh, more popular than so many of their peers at the time because they were making records. You know, like you go back now, and I would highly recommend if people don't know, like go back and listen to other bands of that era, like the Pixies and the Jesus Lizard and Mud Honey. Um, so many of those bands are amazing, but did not have the pop sensibility that Nirvana did. The, the melodies. Being able to write like a catchy, hooky song. His, his willingness to do that was what took that sound and brought it to that level. And his inability not to do that too, right? True, the yeah, fact yeah. that like there's really only three real Nirvana records and they all have really clear melodies. They do, yeah. And um, that's tight. So my last question for you. Oh, yeah. Matthew Milligan. Sure. What is your favorite record of all time? Oh, no. Um, my favorite record of all time. What a question. That's such a tough question. Um, People don't like being asked this, I think. <laughs> well, it would be really hard. I'm, I'm you can say, say you don't have one. No, no. I'm going to say the first thing that popped into my mind. Um, and the first thing that popped into my mind is Revolver by the Beatles. Oh. Um, but I you mean. You know, Chuck D's favorite Beatles record. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I was, it's funny because I was just going to say, like, if you asked me 
like favorite record of all time is one thing, but then to say like, oh, what's your favorite hip hop record? If you even if you said what's your favorite rock record, mm-hmm. I would probably not have even thought of Revolver. Oh. I don't, almost don't think of that as a rock record, even though it is. Uh, um, but it's so you know, like, wasn't it? Didn't they record that before the last record or apps? I'm sorry, obviously, did they record it last, but it got released before Abbey the- Road is what you're thinking of. They, oh. they recorded um, uh, Abbey Road uh, was the last thing they recorded, but after Abbey Road came out, um, they released Let It Be. Which they'd recorded before. They recorded before, which but they, they didn't re- want to come out. They didn't like it. They didn't, f- and that was with uh, the guy who shot his wife, Phil Spector. Yeah, or his girlfriend. Yes, allegedly. Allegedly, is he canceled? I don't know. Phil Spector. <laughs> um, he's in. He's in prison, right? So his produ- his production career is canceled. Uh, he's not doing any current work. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, if you've done, what was the, the last album? Yesterday or Let It Be? The last proper record they made was Abbey was, Road. Yes, but the last like full album that got released was Let It Be. So why did they eventually release it? I was just the label, I think. I mean, imagine like being the label that had the Beatles signed and they were like, "Well, we're done." And they had one unreleased record. They're like, "Well, we're gonna, we're, we're not like, going to not release this the, the biggest band in the world." Yeah. We're, gonna, we're not, you know, they couldn't stop them, so. They couldn't that was the, they didn't have much negotiating power. Yeah. But I've always loved the fact that that's true because Let It Be is often considered a bit of a shakier record for them. So, does it have the song Let It Be on there? It does. It does. But as an album, it's like not quite as like Abbey Road is often considered one of their best records. Uh And I've heard people say, like, oh, yeah, well, Let It Be, you could tell they were about to break up because it's not quite as solid. But Abbey Road was actually the last. The last thing they made, actually, it's interesting. pretty much flawless. So let's talk about the main Beatles records. In yes, order. so they're all the they're all there's like the Meet the Beatles and all the older stuff. Well, I was going to say we can talk about the uh, British records or the American records. Let's talk about they, the canon and like where to start without getting too confusing. Let's go backwards. Abbey Road was their last one. Yes. Then did they record Let It Be? They recorded Let It Be before Abbey Road, and then Revolver. No, but after that, um, before that was the White Album. And the, oh yeah, and that doing was, it backwards is really challenging. And the and white fun. album, it's like having to do the alphabet backwards when you get pulled over. Yeah, that white album, the white, not that that's ever happened. The white album <laughs> is the one where they did all like the tape and four track experimentations. Uh, they did a lot of that on the white album. Yeah, exactly. Before that, Sgt. Pepper's. Before white album was Magical Mystery Tour. Oh yeah, before which Magi- is kind of like eh. Uh, Magical Mystery Tour is definitely also hit and miss. They say that that was the one that they had the least guidance on. George Martin, the producer, was around less in the making of that record, and uh, he was really good at like reining them in when they were. It's like Eminem after Dre, exactly hit or miss, exactly. And then before that, well, you go, you probably know. Uh, And then before Magical Mystery was Sgt. Pepper. Oh, Um, and so they did two albums of like. God, I hope I'm doing this right. I'm very sorry if I do this wrong. There's two two albums where they're like, let's speak other characters and let's be like magical fun little fairy guys yeah like yeah. like not <laughs> i'll be like fairy like that <laughs> i mean like magical fantasy land dress dress up like let's dress up like little sergeants with yeah, our little yeah. coats or let's dress up like crazy wild animals <laughs> we'll go to magic land i think uh then yellow submarine was before that oh yellow so i forgot yellow submarine is in there um is that an album or just a song it's i guess it technically counts as a record um but it was like the soundtrack to the movie there's a couple songs on there that were uh, unreleased or were singles that they threw on the record. So Yellow Submarine, if we count that as a record, would, comp. would have fallen uh, around the Let It Be era uh, so, before oh, Abbey Road as well. Oh, so that was towards the end. Did that have uh, Did that have Octopus's Garden? Octopus's Garden is on... Oh, God. Is it on... Uh, 
No, that's on Abbey Road. Okay, that's what's up. Classic. Yeah. So, um, going back. So before. So oh, so confusing. Sergeant Pepper, and then before that is Revolver, and before that Rubber Soul. Oh, and Rubber Soul is like the f- American debut. No, Ru- uh, Rubber Soul was the. No, it wasn't the American debut. That's where the British and the U.S. That, albums that's link. where they start to link up. Yeah, exactly. So before if that, you go before that, then it gets confusing because then it's before the, that's Elvis covers. Really. Yeah, the the American records were like Meet the Beatles and uh, you know Hard Day's Night and Help and um, all that kind of stuff. But then in the UK, it oh was, Help, yeah, oh that's before that. Um, yeah, Help was from the earlier days. Um, it, it, Rubber Soul is kind of like the marker, I think, for most people. Like that's the start of the second age of the Beatles. Okay. Like when, and that had a lot of got much more, more bounce to the ounce. Hey, <laughs> you know, something I did on the last tour, I had this long drive. So I, so years, a few years ago, maybe 20 years ago, Capitol released this, um, the, the Beatles anthologies. Yeah. You listen to those back mm-hmm. to back. It's awesome because it really shows how like raw their musicianship was. Yeah. And their commentary. It's awesome. They had, you know, it's a great, uh, thing to talk about. is just the fact that like, before the Beatles got signed and before they did, before they became the Beatles, they played together just as musicians doing cover songs. They would do Chuck Berry covers and um, uh, Elvis, uh, Elvis Presley and Buddy Holly. Yeah. And they just played in Munich or no, Ham- Frankfurt, Hamburg, Hamburg. Hamburg. Uh, and they played. They must have clocked thousands of hours of playtime before they ever got signed or wrote a song of their own. And it's one of those things that's like one of my favorite things about the Beatles career is that it happened so fast. They made so much music in like nine years. They were only a band for nine years. Wow. Um, and in that amount of time, they released, uh, what's the total count on records? Like maybe 12. Um, and they're like, you know, almost all like just flawless examples, like some of the perfect right. pop songwriting and recording ever made. Um, and it seems like, wow, how did they do that so fast? But a huge part of it was they clocked so much time. Like, they were so ready. When they right. got signed and they were like, well, you get to make a record, they could not have been, they were like, we have been waiting for this moment for years and we are, like, here to do it. And so, n- despite the talent and the preparation, there's also the historical elements of being this post-World War II creation where everyone's, like, the, the fusion of cultures and prosperity and joy, they manifested that. And being a port city, so the influence of music like blues and yeah, skiffle music and all this right. stuff came into Liverpool. And so it had this unique amalgamation of cultures that led them to define the 20th century popular music arc. So it's a very appropriate well band. Well said. Well said. <laughs> so you want to know my favorite record? Tell me. Great Malenko. Great Malenko, my favorite record of all time. Oh, yeah. It's a little problematic. <laughs> and, um, you know, you can't bump in the whip on the way of the Women's March. <laughs> But it's, it's great. I'll t- I, I really love the fact. This is another great. Like, I love the fact that ICP has had something of a resurgence. Another good example of the thing we were talking about. Yeah, I mean, the miracles thing. Eleven years ago now. Eleven years. Even ago. though that song came out in two thousand eight, it was the Saturday Night Live thing, like two thousand nine, two thousand ten, yeah. and the fact that I don't. Did you know we played the Gathering? I told you that. You did. Meg Ren and I. You did. And the fact that. You know, they know it's they know that their biggest years are behind them. Sure. Obviously. But you know, they'd be getting those checks. Absolutely. And they're still they're still those that record holds up because it has it has features by uh Slash from Guns N' Roses, Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols, Alex Cooper, produced by Mikey Clark, who did most of the great ICP production. And that that album 
is from start to finish, there's not a bad song on it. I, I think that they're another great example of a band that has been around for long enough now that I'm starting to see the pendulum swing. Like they were a joke. You know that was the name of their comic book, the pendulum really came with an album. I know all the deep. I see so poetic. Uh, I I'm seeing it like kind of, you know, swing back around and I think people are starting to treat them with respect. Cause again, truly like you can't, I, I really believe it. Like if you want to do something, especially in, in any art, if you want to do something that's different, that's like left of center and is not, you know, you're not going to be the person who's, you know, you're not striving to be the next um, Lady Gaga or the next uh, John Lennon. Well, he was kind of non-conventional. Sure, but anyone who's like just going for like top forty. Radio, oh, for, na- now. for, for now. Yeah. Like, if you don't want to do that, if you want to do your own weird thing, yeah. Um, if you find something that you know is great that you really, really love, yeah, and you just do it, and you get like you're going to keep getting better at it the longer you do it, right? Just right. You keep putting at, keep working at it. You're just going to get better and better and better, and. At a certain point, if you can do it for long enough, it's almost like people can't deny what you're doing. Right. It's it's attrition, right? Exactly. Um, it's, you're gonna like you can just beat people into submission in a way. It's like at a certain point, it's like, well, God, I guess, yeah, yeah I some, guess something I, has to be to this because if there wasn't, ICP would not be doing the gathering every year for <laughs> how long? Well, they just now? did their twentieth. Yeah, yeah, and and it's also like. Um, yeah, and it means, oh, you figured out a way to either through your own financial savvy or through investors maintain this. Yeah. Um, and it's also like, there. so in, in all these subgenres, there are all these ways you can prove yourself. So like with ICP, they sign artists, and one of the ways that they make sure the artists are like good enough, they do versions of the characters and songs from the Dark Carnival in their own style. So so for instance, Ouija Mac did a version of the Dead Body Man, which is a song from Terror Wheel, which was their first radio hit. He did a, a version called the Dead Body Man 3, where he did like kind of like a SoundCloud post-millennial version of that. And so it's like how you manifest, it's like being able to play a blues scale, right? Uh-huh. Being able to, to do something bigger, it's like, the subgenre then creates subgenres within itself. Sure. Or so like in nerdcore, the way to show like how good a nerdcore rapper are you is like, how good is his Star Wars song? How deep is he with his or she with their references? You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. So in, in ICP, when someone does one of those tracks, do they use the same beat? Is it like a new verse over the same, is it's, it like a mixtape it, style? It's often like a remix of the beat or sampling the other beat. Right. Like big hoodoo, uh, has he's he's their he's their rapper from like southwest detroit who's like a he's like um a uh witch doctor kind of character i love it and um he has a there's a there's a song called southwest voodoo on great malenko and so one of hoodoo's best songs is a sample from that so instead of the the hook from southwest voodoo is voodoo running from my magic so they go hoodoo running from my magic so if you listen to the ICP's other artists, you see how they fit into that category. And as and the reason I mentioned the Star Wars thing is like, that's how we started the conversation. Yeah. If you can, I don't know, if you can, the greatest gift is to stick around long enough where you can influence other generations, subgenres, people emulate you, and you can foster other careers. That is like the beauty and the best thing about the music industry. And Weedis has done that with so many acts, myself included, where using your i don't know the success of the project you guys have fostered all this new music and late cambrian right another example sure yeah i mean we've it's been a damien i mean he wouldn't have ever left the u.s otherwise yeah we brought mc front a lot to the uk for the first time yeah um 
uh, yeah, no, I mean, we've gotten really lucky. Uh, who else? Um, Math the Band. Math the Band, Handjob Academy. Handjob Academy. Uh, Busted. Uh, <laughs> Busted, we really helped them a lot. Uh, Cornmo, we brought Cornmo oh, to the yeah. UK and did a tour. Um, you were on that tour, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was a good 2012. time. 2012. Right, wow. Um, um, yeah, no, that's a, that's a real, like, uh, if you're in a position to do that as a band, getting to uh, um, share music you love mm-hmm. with your fans is... Other yeah, bands it, you love. Yeah, other bands that you love. Like like an artist that we are a huge fan of to like bring them out and be like, before you see us, we want you to check out these great artists. Like that's a real treat. And stylistically, being this band that bridged these eras, it seems like everyone, every pop band tries to do a Teenage Dirtbag kind of song, whether consciously or not. This idea of like the big chorus nostalgia about being younger mm-hmm. right you hear that in like what weezer's beverly hills even it's like people kind of i don't know that song has been emulated and inspired so many people and you're part of its living history matt yeah yeah no it's a it's a trip it's a really wild uh it's a wild experience it continues to be it has been for a long time and it still is and I'm glad we're friends. Yeah, I am too, man. So let's play the Hanson cover. Okay, sure. Yeah, we can definitely do that. Let's plug your personal social media. Sure. Uh, I am on Instagram at Millie Milligan, M-I-L-L-I-M-I-L-L-I-G-A-N. And you do a thing like in, in October, you watch a horror movie every day and review it on Instagram? I was, I was doing the uh, 31 Days of Horror in October. I did that two years in a row. What's I'm actually considering yeah. doing something different this year and just like having a list of like every movie I watch all year. I'm, I won't plug that every on my day? Instagram the same way. Not every day. Cause that's, I, are you in letterboxd? That's exactly what I think I'm going to do is set up. A are letterboxd. you on there? Yeah. yeah. Okay, we gotta be friends. Set up a letterbox and do like every movie that I see all year. Cause, um, and talk about ones that are my favorites or no, you can do now is October do a review of every ICP protege and which dark, dark carnival tropes they use. Oh, I should do that. <laughs> um matt and then what are you on twitter uh same at millie milligan on twitter and i guess uh my website is matthew-milligan.com and that has like the list of shows that i do i play with obviously weedis all the time uh mike Doty pretty regularly but i also play with all sorts of people i have a show with joey uh joey slater my wife um she has a new record and we're doing a show uh at knitting factory um at the end of this month and then my band Grim all day is doing a show i'm i'm always doing something so if you ever want to like come find me you can that's probably the best way and i would say if anyone's looking for a professional touring artist matt's schedule is pretty busy but i'm just saying uh, if I'm my schedule Coast, is busy but also i always want to do everything yeah i i love that's why you're success i love playing with you know a friend of mine told me this um a few years ago and it's my favorite piece of music a musician advice I have ever gotten, which yeah. is, um, you know, if you're a musician, if you're listening to this and you're, you're a musician trying to like figure out how to do it. Um, there's a lot of different approaches and different pieces of advice on how to make a living, how to get paid. Like there's so much work that's available to you that someone doesn't have a budget to pay you to play on that kind of thing. And, um, someone told me that the rule of thumb should always be if you love the music and you love the people do it. Mm. And that will always, that attitude will always lead you down the right path to more good people and more good music. And eventually, even if not on that, the number of times I've done a gig where I didn't get paid because I loved the person and I loved what they were doing, right. that then eventually led to work where I made 
a lot of money yeah. or a good amount of money yeah. um, is I couldn't even tell you how many times that has happened. That's, I think that for me moving forward, always, that's the thing I think about. If somebody wants to offer me something like, oh, can you do this? But I can only pay you a few bucks, whatever it is. Like, you know what? I think this music's dope. I really like this person. Sure, I'll do it. And and being able to have your business right so you can take opportunities like that. Exactly. So on yeah. young musicians, whatever, being able to have that side hustle or Yeah. Obviously something. I'm not like if you have a touring opportunity, <laughs> you can't turn that down. Like you can't turn down money for those sorts of things. Yeah. But as a rule, there's you know, usually when you do this, there's plenty of time where you're not working. And if you have that freedom in your schedule where you're able to say yes to those sorts of things, do it. And then the idea is supposed to be that if you're not if at a certain point you're not happy with it anymore and you don't like it, then don't do it. Right. You know, especially if, and then it only becomes a problem when you're getting paid a ton if you don't love it. But then that's a good problem to have. If you're getting paid a ton of money and you are not loving what you do, um, I would say that is a good problem to have. But then, you know, you start uh, again searching for the gig that has the music you love and the people you love. Um, and Matt, that attitude, everyone I've rehired for projects, you know, people who've been working with me since the beginning from the ground floor. Yeah. Those are the people that I've rehired who yeah. have a good attitude, who aren't salty on the road about needing more, right? When you've already paid them. Like, yep. and that's how you get ahead in the industry. And um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like being a good person actually, and being an easy to work with person means for longevity means as much as your talent, probably more. Yeah. Cause I'd rather have someone who's a okay guitarist who's really awesome than like, than like slash being, you know, I'm not saying maybe Slash would be fun, but someone who's like real diva. There's no, I mean, the reality is there is no shortage of great musicians. Right. There's really not. The thing that can set you apart is being someone who is chill yeah. and cool to hang out with and also like willing to like meet you halfway and, and understand, you know, like artists nine times out of 10. This is another thing I've seen people do that I always think is a mistake is like someone wants you to do a gig and you want to do it, but then you try to like squeeze as much money out of that single gig as you possibly can. Like that might work for the one off gig, but that person probably will not call you again. Right. right. And I would much rather like if someone wants me to play and they're like, Ooh, you know, I would love for you to be on it, but money's tight and I can only pay you, you know, whatever small amount of money it is for this show. Be like, okay, that's cool. That's fine. Um, I'll, I'll do it this time. No, no sweat. And that person, We'll call you again. They're going to want to work with you again. Yeah. And not because I'm not saying get taken advantage of. This is always a fine line here, you know, right. but, but, um, being willing to most artists, most songwriters or whoever, you know, whoever you're working with are not loaded. No. <laughs> they're not rich. And if they're hiring musicians, it is at a great loss almost every single time. Right. So creating those relationships with those people where you feel like you're on the same team, that's huge. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's true, Matt. That's right. important. And you guys are maybe touring more this year, Weedus.com? Uh, it looks like Weedus, yeah, Weedus.com. It looks like Weedus is going to do uh, America, Europe, and Australia oh, shoot. in 2020. We have. That's awesome. Uh, it would be too soon for me to say specifics, but basically. Like mainland Europe, too? I hope so, yeah. I'm, yeah. Um, How's it been with the pound being, like, non-existent? <laughs> <laughs> That's horrible. It's been stressful. Brandon um, should go on UK t TV and publicly comment on it. Oh, good idea. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe we'll go back just so he can talk on TV. What is it now? Like a dollar to the pound almost? I actually don't know because it's been moving so wildly. Like it's it, been changing a lot. Do you think it will go back to two pound, $2 a pound? Uh, probably not. 
uh, yeah. not anytime soon, but, um, yeah, no, it's, I mean, oh my God, what a, what a can of worms to open, but like, yeah, who knows what the, the Brexit thing will actually mean for us. Cause we used to like, if you were a touring act, you could go to the UK and then you could also tour around Europe Yeah, and there was no problem with that. You didn't even have to like, they would check your passport, but you didn't need separate visas. Right. You didn't need any of that kind of stuff. And that might be about to change. Um, so, wow. And it's already a big, to get into the UK is, uh, the work permits. They're very Procrustean. They're very like draconian. Draconian. <laughs> yes. It's so difficult and it's expensive to buy the work permits. Like I had a friend who went to do a tour over there back in the MySpace days and he landed and they went on this MySpace page and saw his tour dates. They just looked him up. He didn't have a work permit. Sent him on a Sent plane. Him home. Yeah. I had that happen to somebody at the Canadian border friend of mine that's not fresh yeah i mean it's uh um it's no joke but you know i think as the world you know we become like a police state and we've got this mcgillicuddy lockdown on the cultures and everyone's afraid and voting conservatively McGillicuddy lockdown <laughs> that's a god i love that that's so a phrase much. that's a phrase from lord grunge from grand buffet he is it really yeah i want to shout him out the uh, first thought i had there is i want to give that to front a lot for the would you go see a band called McGillicuddy lockdown. Front of that's new record that's coming out in 2040. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, <laughs> as the world becomes like a dystopian, like nightmare scape, and as the, the forests continue to burn, one thing we have is Teenage Dirtbag. That's <laughs> the one thing we can all agree do we you, still have. Do you feel like people have an identification with that song? Because at the beginning of Loser, when they show it, you see the Trade Center. It reminds us of a pre-9-11 world. Oh, my world. God. It, it very well might. You know, Brendan has said many times and that, that that is one of his favorite, considering like the placement of that song in that movie really wound up not doing anything for the band. But the fact that it's this crazy aerial shot of the song playing with this view of the Trade Center is pretty wild. Who's the lead guy who was in American Pie who was in that movie? Jason Biggs. Well, it got Jason Biggs in the, in the video which then gave it like this iconic stance. It gave it, it's true actually. And that yeah. pay, helped pay for the video, I guess. It's kind of crazy. Like at this point, I, I have no data to back this up, but I more people have seen the Teenage Dirtbag video than that movie, I'm sure. Yeah. At this point, which they is think crazy. It, they all think it's from American Pie. Everyone thinks it's from American Pie because it's Jason Biggs and Mina Suvari. And the guy who, and she was in American Beauty. Yes. And the guy who directed American Beauty just did that 1917 or 1918 movie. Have you seen that? No, I haven't yet. I'm, I was actually planning on going to see that this weekend. I Highly recommend it. You saw it? Yeah. But I, but I mentioned it because the American Beauty connection. Right. Yeah. yeah. Apropos of nothing. That's, he directed American Beauty? Yeah. Crazy, Sam right? Mendes? Yeah. And it's his grandfather's story that wow. he told him that he turned into this. I didn't movie. realize it was the same guy because he made Skyfall, right? Yeah. I think that was, yeah. He's had an interesting career. Yeah. I was all over the place. I love that. I love people who do different weird things. That's what's up. Yeah, that's why I like you, Matt. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm just glad we're friends for life. I am too. And in a mbop, you're gone. <laughs> in an mbop, you're not there. <laughs> you ever see that shirt that's Hanson and it says Nirvana and the Nirvana font under them? I, that. I wanted to do a shirt where it was Frontalized Faces, MC Lars. <laughs> But he nixed that. I he did not have, like that I idea. I shouldn't have asked him. I would say, if you didn't ask and that just was at the merch table, mm. honestly. I feel like half of my podcast is me making <laughs> fun of front a lot. <laughs> but it's really just like this rivalry, but we're not really rivals. We're just friends. Maybe I should just not do that. I th- well, no. I mean, it's, it's I not think fresh. If it's a friendly, uh, I think friendly rivalries are fine. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I guess that's what's up. It's like when Brendan is always doing interviews, he is always talking about Rivers Cuomo nonstop. I know. <laughs> it comes up. A- 
He mentions him lovingly. He does. We've never, um, we've never met those guys. It's wow. funny. We've had like online communication with them and stuff. Like we had a, a nice like back and forth about the, the, uh, what, the dirtbag thing when that yeah. happened. Um, but we've never actually met. What would they say? Still rivers, still rivers run deep. So Rivers is still running deep with his yeah. lyrics. And then they did the Toto thing with Weird Al. They did this. <laughs> so tight. Why was Toto such a hit all of a sudden in 2017? I don't know. I don't know. Again, a great example of longevity, right? That Toto, Toto's Africa, I'm sorry, Africa is the teenage dirtbag of 1982. That might be true. Have you ever seen the video? Someone did a YouTube video where they took the song Africa and they recut the songs so that every word plays in alphabetical order. No. That well, that's amazing. highly recommended. Those are fun. If anyone is still listening to this at this point, definitely check that out. And you know what's kind of funny is that um, Africa wasn't supposed to be on the record. Oh, yeah? It was one of those? Yeah. Um, you know what's sometimes funny what I like to do on Reddit is like troll people. So <laughs> so when Weezer, so when Weezer did... You guys can look at my... Go to my MC underscore Lars account and see my posts. And there's proof of this. When Weezer covered... When, we, when Weezer covered Africa... Um, Toto went and did a Weezer song and it was on the front page and they posted it and then my comment was huh this is, this is probably because Weezer covered Africa and I got so much so much no one knew I was joking like no duh fool you got downvoted to hell downvote and everyone was like all these comments like obviously are you stupid or something or when um, Old Town Road was got like a billion hits I commented on there little Nas X you're doing great I wish you all the success and all these people were like he's already successful that doesn't mean anything you know what else is funny to do what you know on Venmo you can see people's purchase histories yeah. So if someone like Brendan pays you for a session, it yeah, says, yeah. so I, I, all my Facebook friends are on there. A lot of people I don't really know. So I always go through and comment and <laughs> leave like weird messages <laughs> like, thanks, I'll get you next week. <laughs> or like, or like, that was awesome. And, and, or like, congratulations. I can't believe like weird comments that show I'm somehow involved in these transactions. I love that. And I confuse people. A friend of mine or a friend of a friend on Venmo, uh, started recently doing this really funny thing where you can just send any amount of money to anybody. So this person would just take any random person, friend they had, and would just send them two cents with like advice. It was like just my two cents. So they're just like going down her entire friend list and just being like, I think you need a haircut. (laughs) Two cents. Like that's a really, really funny. You don't have to pay a commission on that. No, two cents. No, no, it's just so you could do a fifty. Well, maybe t- it's like I think you uh, maybe for if you use your bank account, it costs. But if it's out of your Venmo balance, yeah, they don't care. Listen, you can do that just joke fifty keep, times. I know, yeah, a lot of times. For a dollar, one dollar. Um, Weedus dot com. Weedus dot com for the upcoming tour days. This has been a good one. This is a long one. I don't think I'm going to edit much out. Yeah, well, you know, whatever, uh, whatever you want to do, man. For, for anyone who's still listening, if you go to a Weedus show and see Matt Milligan and say the words magical tofu, Matt Milligan's going to get your email, and I'm going to send you an MC Lars prize pack. I love that. Magical I mean, tofu. To Matt Milligan, and then you have to give him your email, and the limit to the first three people. Three people. There's going to be a lot of shows. It'll be, you got to remember, because it's going to be a little while. I think the touring is going to probably start in the summertime. What if someone says magical tofu? Will you be confused? I will not be confused because I will never forget this day. Okay, magical tofu. <laughs> and I'm sending you a prize kit which includes a shirt with my name and front of lot's face. Front of lot's face. Very limited. Is Don't that, tell him. Is that a great concept? I think it's great. I mean honestly like if you had made that shirt and there was just like a a video, a hidden camera shot of him seeing that, 
that would be he's very protective of his intellectual property <laughs> so i think both of his fans really <laughs> he's he's revered and he's the reason why we're all doing the nerdcore stuff love he you is. damien damien's great love you damien and he's fun to play with i love playing with damien yeah i've i'm lucky i've gotten to play with you and damien i feel like i'm like that's uh the I, difference with playing with him is you're playing the song with me. You're trying to compete with like the whole MP3 of the original recording, <laughs> right? <laughs> it, it's very different. But I love your uh, playing with you is like the most like joyful, like chaotic. I don't have much many notes usually ever for rehearsal. It's yeah, no, it's just like well, <laughs> they well, don't like, play songs you don't know. I was saying like we'll get on stage and you'll just start the backing track to something we've never heard before, and you're like, yeah, it'll be fine. Like okay, it's fine. That's the whole thing. Like you could be sloppy if. You get the choruses if your breath control is good. Yeah. And I know by the end of the song, you'll know it. Absolutely, yeah. My songs have this weird like schism where they're like, there's some that are real simple and some that are like confusingly difficult, like really complicated. Yeah. There's nothing really in between. I'm trying to remember when we did the Gold Sounds, there was one song of yours that was like incredibly complicated. Must Was it like Guitar Hero Hero or something? No, it wasn't that. We didn't we didn't do that one, I don't think. It was... um. Maybe it was Dragon Blood. I don't know. It, it, it was something that were like the number of chord changes was shocking. Like it seemed really repetitive. Yeah, and it moved so much. Probably Dragon Blood. Maybe it was Dragon Blood. That um, was that was the guitar for that was uh, written by Monty Pittman, who's Madonna's guitarist. Really? Yeah, who's awesome. Wow, look at you. Yeah, that's tight. Not bad. Shout out to Monty Pittman. Shout out. Okay, we should wrap it up. Two hours. Jeez. All right. Thanks for listening. Remember the magical tofu. For magical the, tofu for the prize kit. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Lars.
Thank you, Matt. Great interview. We have right now the, the MC, MC Lars, Lars Patreon, Patreon Larson of, the, of week. the week. This week we got Phil calling from upstate New York. Phil talks about first hearing me uh, when I opened for MC Chris and downloading my music illegally. And he says some really nice things. Phil, I think you're super nice too. This is Phil's very kind message. Hey, Lars. So what I was going to do is I was actually going to go see MC Chris and I saw you were on the tour ballot and I had no idea who the hell you were. I just had learned about MC Chris the day beforehand, basically. And I looked and saw who you were and I downloaded some of your music illegally and I said, oh shit, this guy's really good. So I went and saw you. I paid a bunch of money and bought a bunch of your guys' CDs and absolutely loved you and thought you were one of the most awesome, nicest people I've ever met. Met you a few times since then, and you've always been one of the nicest people I've ever met. You are such a great dude. You are a tribute to Nerdcore. You are amazing. Thank you for doing what you do and keep these awesome podcasts up. My name's Phil, by the way. Take care, brother. Thank you, Phil. Your shirt is in the mail. Next week, we have an interview with my cousin, Stuart Handler. Tune in for that. Come check us on tour at nerdcoretour.com. Thank you, Matt, for being on the episode. See you soon.